Hello, this is Lisa, CEO of Site for White, welcoming you to this week's Talking News on Friday the 16th of February 2024. Everybody should now have received their newsletter, which has gone out this week in the usual formats. Please do get in touch if you would prefer to receive the newsletter in a different format. We, of course, offer audio in various ways, Braille, large print, email, PDF, Word. Please do let us know if there is a way you'd prefer and we can ensure we send it out. For those people who listen to the newsletter through the Talking News, it is on this episode this week later. It is really heartwarming to receive comments back about the newsletter and people saying it is improving every time. We really do try and put a lot of effort into finding relevant articles and giving relevant information to people. This issue does have a lot of save the dates for the year, so please do read through it carefully. We've tried to plan the year ahead as much as possible. Further to the activity survey we did this year, we are running a couple of one-off activities this year. So, for example, on Saturday the 20th of April, we've got a pottery session available if anybody would like to join. I'm hoping to be there myself after my attempts last year, although Ruth did completely outshine me with her brilliant pots. Mine, well, it ended up as an egg cup. Just about. Please, everybody, stay safe and hopefully we can see a warmer weather approaching us. Lisa, CEO, Site for White, and of course, White Sense. This is the second part of the talking news, read by Gerard and Susan. Here is this week's charity news, 16th of February 2024. Swimming is on Monday between 1.15 and 2.15pm at Medina Leisure Centre, Newport. The cost is £6 plus transport. We have the whole use of the pool and you can enjoy lane swimming or just gentle relaxation in the water. Yoga is on Tuesday at Millbrook House between 1.45 and 2.45pm. The cost is £4 and includes refreshments. All is welcome. Our weekly coffee and chat is on Wednesday at Millbrook House between 10am and 11.30am. The cost is £2, which includes coffee and cake. Staff are always on hand to help with any inquiries and equipment will be available to try out. Thursday is Mix and Mingle. This group meets between half past 10 and 2pm every week. Booking for this group is essential and at the moment there is a waiting list for people to join. Our monthly Striders group will meet on Friday the 23rd for a stride around Carisbrook and the Buckham area. The minibus will leave at Millbrook at 9.30 and it will start from the Blacksmith's Arms. A date for your diary is Wednesday the 28th of February when our Eye on Social group is welcoming Rachel from the Gift to Nature. This group is open to everyone, so please come along. It starts at 2pm at Millbrook House. Our quarterly newsletter has now been sent out, and everyone should have received theirs. If you would like to join any activity advertised within the newsletter, please call Susan or if there are any questions you have regarding any article, please do not hesitate to call the office. Our knitted Easter egg covers are arriving now at Millbrook and will be on sale from the 1st of March 
at the suggested donation of two pounds. If anyone would like a basket of chicks, we can always gift wrap for you if you call the office. Our monthly 100 club has spare balls available. If anyone would like to buy a ball, it is only £2 per month or £24 for the full year. The more balls in the drawer, the higher the prize money each month. If you would like to take part in our monthly draw, please call the office. This is part of our fundraising activities. If you would like to join any activity or want more details, please call the office on 5205. Now we begin with more news. This is Brian reading an item from Isle of Wight Radio. Future of Military Road under the spotlight as group leaders urge policy rethink. Senior group leaders are urging the Isle of Wight Council to overturn a 14-year-old policy which could hinder the future of the military road. It comes as voids and cliff falls next to the iconic coastal route stretching between Chale and Freshwater have brought forward public concerns about how long the road has left. Councillors Claire Mosdell and Chris Jarman, respective leaders of the Conservative Group and Empowering Islanders at County Hall, are trying to find a way forward to challenge the no active intervention policy currently in place. The policy is part of the Isle of Wight Council's shoreline management plan, which was produced in partnership with the Environment Agency in 2010 and means nothing should be done to stop coastal erosion. As part of the policy, there is no investment in coastal defences and the plan proposed was to abandon the current A. 3055 and rerouted. Prior to shoreline management plan, the council's approach was also to do nothing in that area of the island. To realign the military road could cost upwards of twenty million pounds, Isle of Wight Council leader Phil Jordan has said and the government has been approached about any possible funding opportunities. Last year, plans from Island Roads to shore up a section of coastline between Brook and Hanover Point were refused due to the negative impact it could have on the landscape and protected habitats. Now, councillors Jarman and Mosdell have called for the Council to overturn the 2010 policy and, in conjunction with agencies and landowners, make a de definitive plan to provide a sustainable solution to maintaining the present and long-term future viability of the military road. Speaking at a meeting last week, Councillor Mosdell said the Council cannot move forward with any prospect for the military road without overturning the policy and questioned how the decision was being made about whether or not it was worth saving the highway. The council's chief executive, Wendy Pereira, 
said it, it wasn't as simple as revoking the current policy, but if the council was to look at revising it, there would be a significant amount of work needed. She said the council was hearing a dichotomy between investing in, in, in an in engineering project for coastal defences versus the options around rerouting the road. Mrs Pereira advised the best place for the discussion was at the authorities' neighbourhoods and regeneration scrutiny, which is chaired by Councillor Nick Stewart, who's taking an active role in the debate for the military road as the road passes through his ward. Isle of Wight MP Bob Seeley is also calling for the policy to be overturned. This is Chris reading an article from the Island Echo. Shanklin Regatta on the move and change for Beauty Queen's competition. Shanklin Regatta will be relocating in 2024, moving from its traditional spot at the Pier Apron to the car park at Hope Road and it will no longer call its beauty pageant Beauty Queens. In recent years, the regatta has been held each August on the site of the former Shanklin Pier entrance. But organisers have announced that for 2024, the celebrations will be moving to the other end of the Esplanade at what is known as Stink Pot Car Park. Don't fear, though. The free family shore sports, including tug-of-war and egg and spoon, to name a few, will take place on Hope Beach with the very kind support from Paul Bailey. However, in response to feedback from visitors, the format of the Beauty Queen's event is changing. It will now be called Princess and Princes. Lynn Fleming, chair of Shanklin Regatta, has said. Planning is well underway for the 2024 summer event, with some new plans and ideas, such as a market street style for business and charities to trade from, a food and drink street mixed with an entertainment area, with a stage area for the event compare, live music and a number of other island-based talents. We have also asked for nice weather. Trader applications will open on Saturday the 17th of February at 10am, with just five stalls permitted for food and drink, and 25 Market Street stalls Applications can be found at shanklinregatta.co.uk forward slash traders forward slash. This is Michael reading an article from Ireland Echo. Exceptional Hardship Fund could be reintroduced to help most vulnerable. The leader of the Isle of Wight Council is looking to reinstate an exceptional hardship fund which has helped more than 1,000 vulnerable islanders since it was introduced. It would rescind a decision made in January by the full council to scrap the fund 
and use the money from it towards increasing the amount of council tax support offered to residents with low incomes. The move was initially proposed by Councillor Claire Molstell, the Conservative group leader, and was supported by a vote by 21 fellow councillors, while 14 opposed it and one abstained. While the council tax support will stay at the approved level, offering up to a 75% discount on council tax bills, Councillor Phil Jordan has announced the Cabinet Executive would look to rescind the unfortunate amendment at the next full council meeting later this month. Speaking at a meeting last week, Councillor Jordan said the Cabinet is in favour of getting the best support it can offer to the most vulnerable and most in need, but the cost of increasing the local council tax support scheme hadn't been taken into account. To increase the support to 75%, the authority had to find an additional £366,000 and to make it sound plausible and palatable. Councillor Jordan said the exceptional hardship fund was removed. The discretionary fund further helps those eligible for the council tax support scheme who are facing additional genuine hardships by paying even more of an individual's council tax. Councillor Jordan announced his intention to submit a motion to rescind the unfortunate decision full council made so the essential support for the most needed in the community and Ireland can be reinstated and said during the discussion at full council in January some councillors said the application process to submit a claim to the hardship fund was difficult and degrading and people felt like they lost their dignity applying for it. There was no clarity at the meeting as to how much was in the Exceptional Hardship Fund or how many successful applications had been made since it was introduced in 2016. When it was first started, the Isle of Wight Council had set aside more than £200,000 for the Hardship Fund, but it was slashed to a quarter of the size in the following year. 2017 to £50,000 and has remained that size ever since. Figures from a Freedom of Information request since the meeting reveal the number of successful applications has continued to rise year on year since 2017 and the Council has paid out more than £215,000 to 1,146 islanders. In the last financial year, 2022-23, the authority went over its allocated £50,000 budget with 282 successful applications amounting to £54,747. Up until the end of 2023, In the nine months the fund has been open, 271 applicants have come forward with only 150 of those a success, 
and equalling a payout from the council of £44,292. This is Petrina reading from Isle of Wight Radio. Isle of Wight councillors sign agreement during visit to Twin Town of Coburg. The chairman of the Isle of Wight Council has shared photos from a recent civic visit to Coburg, continuing the 40th anniversary celebrations of friendship between the two locations. The visit followed on from one made by the German delegation to the island last summer. Councillor Claire Critchison, along with councillors Debbie Andre and Chris Jarman, made the self-funded visit to the town of Coburg and were taken on tours of the council's offices, town centre, royal palace and the museum, within which included a display about the Isle of Wight. Councillors also visited the childhood home of Prince Albert. To recall, the Isle of Wight has a close connection to the town of Coburg through Prince Albert, who was born in Coburg in 1819. He was a regular visitor to the island and thereafter resident at the island's Osborne House alongside his wife, Queen Victoria, and their children. Councillor Crutchison said, It was wonderful to see the history that Coburg and the island share and ensure the links created by the union of Victoria and Albert continue to this day. We have put together a photo book of the delegations, both visiting the island and our visit to Coburg, as a record of the anniversary year. This will be kept in the chairman's room. The twinning links continue with an apprenticeships exchange scheme, which will see four apprentices from Coburg visit the island this summer. These exchanges help the different cultures to swap ideas and develop a greater understanding of how the councils operate. This is Brian reading an article from the Island Echo. First edition Harry Potter book could make local RSPCA thousands at auction. An anonymous donation of a first edition copy of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is set to make RSPCA Isle of Wight thousands of pounds at auction. The donation was made of one of the charity's Isle of Wight shops, but staff have no idea who gifted it. When the book was discovered, the RSPCA Isle of Wight team called in Jim Spencer, a world-renowned Harry Potter books expert at Hanson's Auctioneers. Jim assessed the book and, thanks to its exceptional condition, guided it at £7,000 to £10,000. It will go under the hammer in Hanson's 26th of February library auction. Rebecca Busby, fundraising, marketing and engagement officer at the RSPCA Isle of Wight branch has said, the book was gifted to one of our charity shops as a possible first edition. One of our volunteers, who is an avid Harry Potter fan and book enthusiast, checked for all the well-known markers and noticed this book had them all. She called me and I could hear her excitement as she said, I can't believe it, 
We have a Harry Potter first edition. It's in the best condition I've ever seen. Please, could you find somewhere to sell this, as we can't sell it in the shop? We were thrilled to have it valued at between £7,000 to £10,000. All funds raised from the sale of this book will directly go towards helping animals in our care now and in the future. Speaking about the find, book expert Jim has said, this deserves to fly, especially for such a great cause. I hope collectors are generous with their bids and help the RSPCA, who do an amazing job caring for animals on the Isle of Wight. It would be very difficult to find another copy that's as well-preserved as this one. So it deserves to set tails wagging at auction. This book represents the beginning of the Harry Potter phenomenon. Not many paperbacks published in the 1990s have the potential to fetch thousands of pounds at auction. Nobody predicted the huge popularity of Harry Potter, so these books were printed on cheap paper stock. This, coupled with the fact that it's a children's book, means most examples are in very poor condition showing signs of being swung about in a school rucksack full of doodles stained from orange squash or, at the very least, faded at the spine from sunlight hitting the bookcase. This one is exceptional. The only minor flaws are a couple of lightly folded corners and the usual light browning to page edges, which is in fact a reassuring sign due to the cheap paper that was used. I'd be worried if the pages didn't have this slight discoloration. It should appeal to collectors all over the world, and the lucky buyer can be doubly happy in the knowledge money raised will help animals like Harry. This is Chris, reading an article from Isle of Wight Radio. Isle of Wight Council begins new traffic consultation for West White. It is the turn of residents in the west of the island to have their say over changes to parking restrictions with the launch of a new consultation from Isle of Wight Council. More than 30 locations, including Freshwater, Yarmouth and Topland, as well as Bryston, Shalfleet and Shorewell, are the subject of a consultation on the proposed changes. In addition, one site in Rookley has been added. The proposals have originated through suggestions made by members of the public or local councillors and the deadline for comments is March the 8th. The consultation contains details of draft traffic regulation orders, TROs. These usually relate to changes to traffic issues such as double yellow lines, limited waiting bays, loading bays, etc. Isle of Wight Council works with town, parish and community councils and local ward councillors to ensure proposals that are generated and reach this stage have already had some degree of public support. Comments of support and objections 
can only be legally considered if a full address is given, whether the response is given by online survey or in by letter or email. This is Michael reading an article from Isle of Wight Radio. Consultation opens on Isle of Wight Air Ambulance Headquarters. A community consultation is being launched regarding a new headquarters for the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Air Ambulance Charity. Its personnel are currently based across two locations, with the operations side including the helicopter and medical teams based at Thruxton Circuit. The rest of the staff are based at Nursling in the Southern Test Valley. The charity has identified a site at George Curl Way, adjacent to Southampton Airport, that would be ideal for a new headquarters. Along with bringing everyone together under one roof, moving to a central location will dramatically reduce response times and minimise flying and travel time. This means crews will be able to get to patients far quicker and be restocked, refuelled and ready to respond to the next emergency call, saving precious minutes that could spell the difference between life and death. Demand for the air ambulance is currently rising since its first mission in 2007. The doctors, dispatchers, pilots and paramedics have responded to more than 18,000 missions with no fewer than 1,842 throughout 2023. A new headquarters will ensure the charity can continue its life-saving work. It will also present opportunities to create an aftercare facility delivering follow-up care for those who have previously received emergency critical care and collaborate with like-minded organisations working in the field of emergency medicine. The charity's preferred site is previously developed, with an existing building on the land, and its proximity to Southampton Airport will mask the noise of helicopter takeoffs due to the existing commercial flights in the area. Before submitting an application to Eastleigh Borough Council, the charity is seeking feedback from the residents and other important local stakeholders. As a result, a community consultation is being held that features a drop-in session at Eastleigh Football Club, Stoneham Lane, Eastleigh, on Tuesday the 5th of March 2024, from 4pm to 8pm. For those unable to attend the event, a virtual consultation is taking place on the project's website, where the same information will be displayed and comments can be submitted until Sunday the 17th of March 2024. Richard Corbett, Chief Executive Officer of the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Ambulance Charity, said... Demand is rising for our vital life-saving work, but presently our helicopter is located in the northwest corner of Hampshire, further from the majority of our missions, 
than our preferred site. Moving would reduce response and flying times, enable us to locate all our valued staff under one roof in purpose-built facilities that will allow us to continue our crucial work for years to come. We want to be good neighbours. As a result, we are keen to hear from residents and other important local stakeholders regarding our proposed new headquarters and would encourage people to take part in our community consultation. This is Petrina reading from Island Echo. Council tax rise and toilet admission increase on the cards in Sandown. Sandown residents will again see an increase in their council tax bills after last year's 50% hike. A 6.6 rise in council tax precept was approved by Sandown Town Council on Monday night for the year ahead, as well as an increase in toilet fees to 50 pence all year round. It was also approved to reduce the town mayor's allowance to nothing. The average band D Sandown resident will now pay £232.80 a year towards the services and activities of the town council, an extra £14.47 a year, which makes it one of the most expensive towns, parish or community council precepts on the island. The budget approved by the town council this week, with eight members in favour and three against, was put forward by the current and former mayors, Councillor Alex and Paddy Lightfoot. Councillor Paddy Lightfoot said, The budget is not perfect. It is still a rise. I would love to see it come down, but inflation being where it is, it is an expectation. Unless we cut back, which I refuse to accept we should be doing. The budget includes... £30,000 for a youth provision in the town, £2,000 for the Christmas fund day and £7,000 800 to provide mechanical raking of the beach to the south of Sandown Pier. The council agreed to hire a senior planning enforcement officer for a year but Deputy Mayor Councillor Ian Fletcher was against the idea saying that he felt the officer would not be able to help and it would be wrong for taxpayers to pay nearly £9,000 for that. Councillor Debbie André said residents had long been asking for something to be done about the derelict buildings and, while there would be no magic wand to resolve the situation, a dedicated planning enforcement officer for the town would be valuable. Councillors said they would assess results before they commit to further funding. The Lightfoots also included a £40,000 fund for the place, plan and town improvements for some of the projects in the newly created Bay Place Plan. Councillor Paddy Lightfoot said, It is a chunk of money, but for the last few years we have been rebuilding. We have been sorting out toilets, and I see we should now be looking further ahead than that and about actually rebuilding Sandown. He said the money will help bring additional grant funding from other sources.
This is Brian reading an article from the Island Echo. Derelict Sandown Hotel to be transformed following green light from council. An eyesore hotel on Sandown Seafront, which once hosted rock legend Jimi Hendrix, has been given the green light to undergo major changes. The derelict and dilapidated Esplanade Hotel, fronting Sandown High Street and overlooking the sandy beach, will now be transformed into a block of apartments. Of the 20 units, 14 will be for residential use, while the remaining six will be rented out as holiday lets to make the development viable, plans say. The proposals were first submitted in June 2022 by Plaza Property Developments and now, nearly two years later, planning permission has been approved by the Isle of Wight Council. In 1970, while the building was the Seagrove Hotel, rock star Jimi Hendrix stayed the night before his famous Isle of Wight Festival set. Information submitted to the Council's Planning Authority said the property development company bought the hotel in 2019, but it has not attempted to run the hotel due to its poor condition and the need for extensive repairs. As a result, the hotel has been closed for years and planning officers say its poor condition is having a significant adverse impact on the quality of that part of Sandown and on the viability and vibrancy of the High Street and Esplanade. In their decision report, officers said while a large hotel in a prominent seafront location would be lost, given its current condition and the time the hotel has been vacant, as well as the impact it has combined with other vacant hotels in the area, there would be benefits to the change. They said there would be a significant positive impact for the island's tourism economy as it would bring the site back into use with the residential and holiday use while enhancing the Victorian building, site and surrounding area. Officers said there would be sensitive alterations to the building with windows, doors and balconies replaced. The four buildings which make up the hotel which would also be painted in pastel shades and some extensions would be demolished. The developers will have to comply with 13 conditions, including having to start within three years, specifying which flats are used for holiday accommodation and completing exterior and landscaping works. This is Chris reading an article from Isle of Wight Radio. Second home tax and empty property charge agreed for Isle of Wight homeowners. Isle of Wight Council Cabinet members have approved both the introduction of a second home tax and a revised empty property charge, though a final decision will not be made until later this month. If approved, second home owners will pay 200% council tax on their second property, from April 2025. 
as well as council tax on their main property elsewhere. County Hall says the move could generate an additional £4.2 million per year. Speaking at a meeting, Councillor Ian Stevens, Cabinet Member for Finance, said it would be rather churlish to miss an opportunity to hike the fees, given the council is calling for more money from the government. Councillor Stevens said he didn't feel the charge was outlandish and called it an opportunity passed down by the government in its levelling up and regeneration bill. Councillor Julie Jones-Evans, Cabinet Member for Regeneration and Business Development, said the premium would drive for a sustainable economy while the council waits for proper funding and said County Hall had no choice. Councillor Jonathan Bacon said, while it recognised second home owners do contribute to the island's economy, in areas where there are lots of second homes, it causes a big issue and impacts the availability of local accommodation. Exemptions to the council tax hike are being finalised by the government. Meanwhile, charges for empty properties could now kick in after one year, not two, subject to a final decision later this month. The council has written to the owners of empty island homes offering advice and guidance, said Councillor Stevens, but without much success. The empty property tax could make an additional £88,860 a year. Full Council will make the final decision on February the 28th. This is Michael reading an article from Ireland Echo. Developer walks away from Shanklin Spa site development in Major Regan Blow. Plans for the major redevelopment of an Isle of Wight seafront eyesore have fallen through again. After more than 18 months of no action at the Shanklin Spa site, since the Isle of Wight Council agreed to sell the land, the preferred developer has walked away. The Isle of Wight Council hoped the prominent site on Shanklin Esplanade, next to the cliff lift, would be transformed into the island's first apart hotel and climbing wall with a space for small businesses to trade. The site is currently made up of derelict buildings, closed public toilets and a council-owned car park and had been identified in the authority's 2019 regeneration strategy as one of the six large regeneration opportunities on the island, of which just one has been realised, ride interchange. A spokesperson for the authority has confirmed the developer has discontinued their interest, but the council intends to remarket the site in the coming months. In the meantime, the council says the site continues to generate money through the pay and display car park. The authority agreed in June 2022 to sell the site to a private developer who it is said in cabinet papers 
had an excellent track record of developing projects over the last 15 years, including council property. In the same cabinet papers, the risk of the developer walking away from the site was not considered. At the time, the Isle of Wight Council said it would create a vibrant centre point for the Esplanade, business opportunities and an, an estimated 50 jobs. Now the plan has fallen through, Shanklin Town Council is calling for something to be done to tidy up the site. Councillor Adrian Whitaker for Shanklin Central raised the issue in 2022 at a presentation between Isle of Wight Council officers and the Town Council and said the whole site must be tidied up as it is an eyesore and a blot on the landscape. Now, nearly two years later, Councillor Whitaker has renewed his calls for something to be done about the mess. The Isle of Wight Council has been asked through the BBC Local Democracy Scheme whether it would take action to tidy up the site, but no response has been given. Plans were also drawn up in 2017 to develop the site, but did not proceed further. This is Petrina reading from Isle of Wight Radio. Body Shop UK enters administration. Newport Store, one of 200 in Limbo. The UK arm of the Body Shop has entered administration, threatening jobs and stores across the country. This includes the Body Shop in Newport Town Centre. FRP Advisory has been brought in to handle a reconstructing process just weeks after the new owners took control of the cosmetic retailer. The Body Shop has roughly 200 outlets across the UK. It's understood up to 100 stores could be closed in an effort to bring the number of shops in line with competitors, such as Lush, which has 104 premises in the UK and Ireland. A body shop statement said, Administrators would now consider all options to find a way forward for the business and will update creditors and employees in due course. The business will continue to trade in administration, it added, ensuring customers will be able to continue to shop in a store and online for their favourite projects. The administration provides the stability, flexibility and security to find the best means of securing the future of body shop and revitalising this iconic British brand, it continued. The Body Shop has faced an extended period of financial challenges under past ownership, coinciding with a difficult trading environment for the wider retail sector. According to latest company accounts, the Body Shop had 2,568 staff in the UK, of which 927 were in administrative roles, and 1,641 were store staff in 2022. The brand's global franchise partners are not impacted. The British-based chain was acquired in November by private equity firm 
Aurelius, in a deal, it said, was valued at $207 million. At the time of the purchase, the body shop employed about 10,000 people globally and operated roughly 3,000 stores in 70 countries. Although it struggled with profitable growth for years, it remains a recognisable presence on British high streets. It was founded in 1976 by Dame Anita Roddick and her husband Gordon, championing environmental causes and opposing animal testing. It was owned by L'Oreal between 2006 and 2017 before being sold to Brazilian cosmetics group Natura. Pedestrians seriously injured on High Street. A crash involving a pedestrian, car and ambulance on Wooten High Street on Tuesday resulted in a serious injury for the pedestrian. The road was closed for some time around the Brannan Way Junction. Police, firefighters and paramedics were all called to the scene and the car parked Tesco's Express was cordoned off. A spokesman for Hampshire and Isle of Wight Constabulary said, We were called at 1.42pm to a collision on High Street in Wooten. This involved an ambulance, a car and a pedestrian. The pedestrian suffered a serious but not life-threatening or life-changing injury. The incident led to significant traffic delays in the area and Southern Vectis buses were forced to divert. County Press in for top honours. The Isle of Wight County Press has been nominated for a prestigious industry award for the second year running. The paper, in its 140th year, has been shortlisted for the local weekly newspaper of the year award at the Newspaper Awards 2024. Last year, the paper was commended for being a strong campaigning newspaper which really knows its islanders, serving the community with a well-printed newspaper for almost 140 years. The awards ceremony will be held at London Hilton Bankside on the 26th of March. The County Press is a voice of the island for trusted news and a deep understanding of its community and is among the country's biggest selling weeklies. Since co-editors Lucy Morgan and Laurie Little took over the March in March 2023, the paper has been reshaped to focus on the front page, featuring people-popping design and exclusive stories. Inside offers more photos than ever as part of a modernized layout. The team of reporters, based in Pile Street, Newport, produced a minimum 80 pages of quality content, Knowing their print audience is different to those who consume news online or on social media. The paper proudly shines a spotlight on the community's challenges and successes, 
celebrating achievers, holding decision makers to account, recording legal rulings, and offering a trusted space for those without a voice to speak their truth. Lucy and Laurie said, It is a huge honor for the county press to be recognized by industry experts as one of the best newspapers in the country. Print readership is important, as well as our huge digital reach, and we are proud to put out such a strong paper every week. The county press is up against Cambridge Independent, Ham and High, Lymington Times and New Milton Advertiser, Newbury Weekly News and the Impartial Reporter. Shop Attack Man Jailed A drunken man who had became extremely violent with staff and a customer in Morrison's supermarket has been jailed by magistrates. He attacked the store manager when challenged, taking him to the floor, punching his face and attempting to headbutt him. Stephen Yeo of Park Road Ride admitted two charges of assaulting an emergency worker, namely police officers. In the execution of their duties, assaulting a man by beating, shoplifting, possessing a knuckle buster and possession of cannabis when he appeared at the Isle of Wight Magistrates Court on Friday, February the 9th. The incident happened in Newport on February the 7th. Police were called to an incident in Morrison Supermarket in Newport involving Yeo at 7.40pm that day. After he attacked the store manager, a security guard and shoppers restrained Yeo and a member of the public was punched in the face by him, said Lauren Stone, prosecuting. Yeo struggled during his arrest and was warned to stop, resulting in officers spraying parva into his face as he continued trying to kick officers. During a search of Yeo, police found knuckle dusters and cannabis, Miss Stone added. At Newport Police Station, Yeo kicked an officer's leg. Yeo, with a criminal record of seven convictions for 15 offences between 2019 and 2023, had, in committing last week's offences, breached a 15-week jail term suspended for 18 months. For Yeo, Oscar Vincent said his client, with mental health issues, had been doing abstaining from drink for 14 months until his relationship came to an end. His last memory of that day was leaving home to walk to Newport bus station to get to ride, Mr Vincent said. He was warned by a friend earlier that day not to lapse back into drinking, but he foolishly ignored him. He put his actions down to drink during a mental breakdown. All the supermarket goods... £217.96 worth, were recovered. The bench told Yeo he had wasted his chance and imprisoned him for 12 weeks, together with a £200 fine and £80 surcharge. Yeo was also ordered to pay £50 compensation to his two victims. 
Evacuation over cliff collapse fear. A public garden and a pub were evacuated at the weekend amid fears of cliff collapse in Shanklin. The public were advised to avoid the area in and around Rilston Gardens and the corresponding area below the cliffs. Ground movement and cracks had been detected along the cliff top. The county press understands a local resident walked through the park and noticed a large crack appear within 30 minutes, not far from the bandstand. The crack is said to be around 3 meters long and 8 inches wide. Local authorities were quickly alerted to the danger before police cordon of the area to allow the cliff to be fully assessed. Fisherman, fish, fisherman's cottage on the beach below Shanklin Chine was evacuated on Saturday morning, the Alawad Council said. A spokesperson for the business said the building was closed for around two hours as a temporary measure. While the site was surveyed by a world expert in landslides commissioned by Fisherman's Cottage. By 2 p.m. it was open, said a spokesperson for the Shanklin pub. However, Fisherman's Cottage is not directly below any of the area threatened. Whilst it is near, it is not in the area of concern. Councillor Michael Beston of Shanklin Central Ward said a concerned resident called him to report that a large crack had formed at the top of the cliff by a wooden bench. The road closures and barricades are in place to secure the areas and the public are asked to respect closures for their own and others' safety. At low tide, the public are advised not to walk near the bottom of the cliffs. Mercy Mission for Ukraine Island clubs including the Shankin 41 Club, Shankin Rotary Club and the Isle of Wight Austin Car Club have raised approximately £3,500 towards sending a lorry full of vital supplies to Eastern Europe. The 17-metre-long articulated lorry, which left on Monday, was filled with medical and mobility items, collected by East Cows-based charity Mad Aid, as well as warm winter clothing. Each lorry cost between £4,500 and £5,000 to send from the UK to Moldova, and from there it is distributed to centres across Moldova and the Ukraine border. The items included tourniquets and medication for the Ukraine, as well as equipment and other materials to be used in mad aid refurbishment of the neonatal unit at the main children's hospital in Moldova. There were wheelchairs and walking aids which will be given to disabled people. Mobility equipment is scarce in Moldova and many are housebound because they don't have wheelchair or walker. Mad Aid's Kate Couch said, 
Normally, when equipment is decommissioned in UK hospitals, it ends up in storage or disposed of in landfill. Both are expensive options for the NHS. Instead, MADAID can collect these decommissioned items free of charge. So as well as saving the NHS money, the charity prevents as much usable equipment as possible from going into landfill, so we are also saving the environment. We raise funds to send equipment to hospitals, healthcare centres and individuals who need it in Eastern Europe and Ukraine. And we work with a large network abroad to ensure donations go directly to people in dire need. It's a win-win situation and a perfect example of circular economy working at its best. We are not heading for trouble. The Alawad Council is not heading for bankruptcy, its finance lead has said, after members faced significant financial challenges while drawing up its spending plans for the year ahead. The Alliance administration recently announced its budget plans with a 4.99% council tax increase for residents. Among spending plans and saving initiatives, it is also proposed the authority heads into the next financial year with a 1.2 million structural deficit which will have to come out of the Council's Reserve Fund. Answering to the Authority's Scrutiny Committee on Monday, Councillor Ian Stevens, Cabinet Member for Finance and Housing, said they had tried to be pragmatic with diminished funding, and he would not forgive anyone for saying the authority was a sinking ship heading for bankruptcy. He said, the financing of local government is a concern nationwide. We are living in challenging times and we could do with more money, but it is not helpful for people to say we are backs against the wall or going under. We are not near a Section 114 notice through the skill and prudence of our staff and members not being outlandish with what we are trying to achieve. We have a steady ship at this moment in time and are heading in the right direction. Councillor Stevens said the Alliance had brought forward savings to alleviate the deficit further and noted the financial forecast put forward in the next three years would bring the deficit down to zero. Director of Finance Chris Ward said officers always have a rolling forecast for the authorities' finances. And while it may show a structural deficit this year, moving ahead to 2025, the Council will have a structural surplus of 2.9 million. Concerns were raised 
about the amount of wiggle room the authority would have in its reserves, with only a gap of 2.9 million before the council is automatically issued with a section 114 notice, which effectively declares itself bankrupt. Mr. Ward said the council is able, is stable, but admittedly fragile. Opposition groups will have a chance to present alternative budgets and amendments at the full council meeting on the 28th of February. Five-year stretch for unprovoked attack. A man who fractured another man's eye socket during a serious assault in Sandown has been jailed. On December the 27th, 2021, Paul Biston was having drinks at his address in a shared accommodation block in Fort Street when he invited another resident into his room to pat his dog. The 32-year-old then lunged at the man completely unprovoked and punched him in the head. He then proceeded to repeatedly kick the man in the face while he was on the floor. Despite the victim's pleas for him to stop, Bishton continued the attack, punching and kicking the man and stamping on his head. The victim sustained a fracture to his eye socket as a result, as well as a broken nose and cuts to his eyebrow, eyelid and lips. Following this, other residents tried to calm Bishton down before he assaulted another man in the block, leaving him with scratches to his shoulders, arms and back. Biston, now of Sandown Road Lake, was arrested and later charged with causing grievous bodily harm with intent and assault occasionally actual bodily harm. He admitted the ABH as assault on the second victim at a previous court hearing but denied causing grievous bodily harm with intent to the first man. The case went to trial at Newport Crown Court on New- Monday the 5th of February and Biston was found guilty of causing grievous bodily harm with intent on Thursday February the 8th. He was handed a five-year jail term. DC Amelia Smagic said this was a horrific display of drunken violence perpetrated by Biston against two men leaving one with serious facial injuries. There is simply no place for violence in society, particularly at the scale by Bishton, and he will rightly now suffer his consequences of his actions. Supermarket could fill empty shop site. Plans for a supermarket giant to move into the heart of Newport have been reinvigorated after posters were spotted in a shop window. It now appears Tesco is aiming to open its six-island store in the former Bright House building on the corner of High Street and St. James Street. In 2022, the brand won permission to move into former Laura Ashley store further along the High Street, but these plans appears to have stalled. Now, Rock planning on behalf of Tesco is seeking permission 
to install signs on the Bright House building, as well as air conditioning units and an access gate on St. James Street. The premises has been empty for five years since Bright House moved out in February 2019. A licensing application has also been submitted, asking for the right to sell alcohol from 6 a.m. to midnight every day and to sell late-night refreshments after 11 p.m. View of these latest plans can be seen on Al White Council website. Tesco already has branches in Ride, Freshwater, Sundown, Wooten and Ventnor. Better news on the buses. Late night bus services in rural areas could continue as more money is funnelled into the island's only bus service. Another bus could be added to Route 5 service from Newport to East Cowes, meaning it would operate four buses an hour. The cash pot of 580000 has come from government in its Bus Service Improvement Plan Plus funding, which has been allocated to the Isle of Wight Council. The Council would then pay Southern Vectors to provide the extra services within the next two years. Late-night services on routes 6 and 12 were introduced midway through last year and help more isolated communities enjoy the island's evening economy. The two routes serve Gatcombe, Chillerton, Chale, Knighton and Whitwell, as well as Shawwell, Bryston, Brook, Freshwater and Totland. To put one additional journey on each of the services to and from Newport for a year costs £45,750. The plan is also proposing to use 53500 to keep routes 6 and 12 at its existing service levels during the winter months, October to March, when it previously would have been reduced. The Isle of Wight Council has said Route 5 would benefit from an increased journey frequency as it already has more passengers compared to other routes. With £150,000 of funding over two years, the authority has said it will kick-start the additional journey per hour Afterwards, Southern Vectors will commit to operating it for at least another year. The Isle of Wight Council adopted the bus service improvement plan in October 2021 and has been working with the bus company. A decision about the funding will be made by Councillor Phil Jordan, the Isle of Wight leader and Cabinet Member for Transport and Infrastructure, no earlier than February the 22nd. Cleanup demanded. Derelict houses that have been empty for years could soon be occupied as calls are made for action to be taken over their unsightly state. The two properties on the corner of Marlborough Road on West Street Cross were interlinked with the Penny Feathers development. The houses were originally bought so the sites could be used as part of the highway widening to accommodate the increase in traffic from all the major developments proposed nearby.
while, while planning permission has been granted for the work to take place, it has not been carried out. The major 904 house development, which would have been situated behind Small Brook Lane and stretched along near to Busy Bee Garden Centre, has since been refused and in the months that followed, local ward councillor Michael Lilly has called for enforcement action to keep the properties tidied up and he hoped occupied. Councillor Lilly has been speaking to officers at the Alawat Council who said they would look at taking enforcement action in six months if nothing had happened. At a ride Town Council meeting earlier this month, concerned residents raised the matter saying the time frame was up. Following the meeting, Councillor Lilly said he had continually tried to get the matter addressed and has had conversations about compulsory purchasing them, potentially in partnership with a local housing association. He said the Penny Feather development, first proposed nearly 10 years ago, was a fantasy project, which has created a real nightmare for the neighbours on Marlborough Road. Councillor Lilly said the properties are a damaging eyesore. Now the spokesperson on behalf of the Penny Feathers team has said initial work on the properties has commenced and they are in the process of being sold to local families. The spokesperson said the Penny Feathers team are looking to reach out to local councillors and the Alawat Council in the coming weeks to update them on the works and once completion dates have been confirmed. Ride Town Council has agreed to employ the services of a planning enforcement officer. Councillor Lilly said he wanted to see the houses occupied in less than a year. Decisions on double yellow lines. More than 50 new parking restrictions are being introduced, but a few have hit the brakes for now. Yellow lines for Alvington Manor View in Gumville and waiting restrictions in Wellington Road in Carisbrook have been postponed. On Thursday, February the 8th, the Isle of Wight Council leader and Cabinet Min Member for Transport and Infrastructure, Councillor Phil Jordan, announced those projects were on hold for further consideration. However, other restrictions for Newport, Carisbrook and Gunville were approved by members of the Cabinet in a bid to improve highway safety. It followed requests by residents and town, parish and community councils made over the last 10 years. No waiting restrictions will be added to Carisbrook Road, close to the mini roundabout at Wellington Road, to allow the free flow of traffic at peak times, with no parking Monday to Friday between 8am to 6pm. On Gunville Road, near the Forest Road Junction, Two sections of double yellow lines will be added. 
Other restrictions will be on place on Clatterford Road, St John's Place, Staplers Road and Fairley Road. Councillor Jordan described some of the changes as quite minor. Others are about ensuring existing restrictions can be enforced. School drive for new minibus. A school has launched a fundraising campaign to provide its students with a new minibus for providing out-of-class experiences. St. George's School in Newport is a secondary school for students with a range of complex additional needs, focusing on providing students with a balanced and meaningful curriculum which meets their needs and aspirations. The school offers vocational courses, real-life experiences and opportunities, but this comes with challenges such as finances and transport. Last month, the school's business leader, Leon Backshall, launched a GoFundMe where the community can donate at www.gofundme.com. Staff members are coming to raise enough funds to provide the school with a new minibus, which all students will be able to use to access experiences and learning outside of the classroom. The team at St. George's have already raised over £12,000, but the target is approximately £35,000. Last April, a group of 13 staff completed a 27-mile hike, which for some was the longest distance they had walked non-stop. In November, another staff member took part in the Stars in Their Eyes charity event at the Riverside Centre, going up against other Islanders singers, raising £2,000. Flat out for Pancake Race. The rain did not stop Islanders from celebrating Pancake Day on Tuesday, with hundreds joining in with challenges and races across the island. Returning for its ninth year, Councillor Michael Lilly's Pancake Day Challenge raised £135 through fundraising for ride-based charity Tidal Family Support. Hosted at Pickland Deal on Union Street in Ride, the winner of the challenge was Steve Weir. Red Funnel staff also got into the Pancake Day spirit by flipping pancakes on board the vehicle ferry. Meanwhile, in Yarmouth, many lined the streets, including a Gert Malishag to celebrate the Pancake Day race in St James's Square. Organised by the Yarmouth Carnival Committee, parents, children, shops and businesses all turned out to take part in the town's annual Shrove Tuesday event. On Tuesday evening, Councillor Lilly returned with some Pancake Day fun, this time at an event held at John's Club at Oakfield Football Club in aid of island charities and raising awareness of domestic abuse. Fundraiser Dave Darcy Lee and Peter May from To Be In Her Shoes helped raise money at the event, taking part in the pancake flipping competition alongside Councillor Lilly and Councillor Sarah Redrup. 
Grace's bakery hosted pancake making, while Peter led the high-heeled pancake race. Through fundraising, more than £156 was raised, with the final figure to be confirmed with £120 presented to John Phillips of John's Club. I was an idiot, admits prolific shoplifter. A prolific offender barred from Tesco has been sentenced for a string of shopping, shoplifting offences following his release from prison. Nino Kavanagh of Trinity Road, Ventnor, appeared before Isle of Wight magistrates on, the, on Friday the 9th of February. The 30-year-old admitted four counts of thefts from a shop in Ventnor between the 1st of January and the 21st of January of this year. Prosecutor Lauren Stone said Kavanagh stole cider and beer from Tesco to the value of £68.30. She said he had 37 previous convictions for 74 offences, of which 18 were matters involving theft. Nicholas Muir, defending, said Kavanagh made stupid decisions when under the influence of alcohol and now found himself barred from Tesco. Mr. Muir told the bench Kavanagh was a labourer by trade, currently on universal credit, who lived with his parents and son. He said he was recalled to prison in April of last year and released in August. Invited to speak, Kavanagh said he was sorry and considered he was an idiot who made stupid decisions. He was fined £40 and ordered to pay £68.30 compensation and a £16 surcharge. New Island Lifeboat is veteran of North Sea. An Isle of Wight independent lifeboat station has secured another 10 years of saving lives with the arrival of its new lifeboat brought from a lifeboat service in Scotland. Built in 2006, the Atlantic 85 class lifeboat Lydia MacDonald spent 16 years saving lives at sea in Macduff, Aberdeenshire before being replaced in 2022. The vessel was offered to Freshwater Independent Lifeboat to purchase as part of the RNLI Asset Disposable Programme. The purchase also included a full refit which took place during autumn 2023. Given a new lease of life by the RNLI Inshore Lifeboat Centre in East Cowes, Lydia MacDonald has received a full respray, rewire and two new engines. This will enable Freshwater Independent Lifeboat to continue its mission of saving lives at sea for at least the next 10 years. Lifeboat crews hope to have the vessel in operation by the end of spring. An official launch date will be announced soon. Hard work pays for young boxer Bobby. Young Island boxing ace Bobby Mills 
traveled to Coventry to represent Newport Phoenix Amateur Boxing Club at the weekend. The 11-year-old Carisbrook College student made the trip on Sunday. Boxing at the Newdigate Sports and Social Club, Bobby took on fellow 11-year-old Kia Graham of Team Seymour ABC. Both boys started strongly, but it was Bobby who quickly took control, making solid counter-punches and forcing a standing eight count. The Islander struck, stuck to his game plan to counter over the top of Southpaw Kia Graham's lead hand, which scored heavily, causing his corner to concede and throw in the towel at the end of the first round. I am very pleased with Bobby's performance at the tender age of 11, said head coach Mike Voicy. He trains so hard to improve and he gives 110% in every training session. He now sets his sight on the schoolboy championship next month. Two in for Lib Dems selection. Two councillors have thrown their hats into the ring to become MPs for the Isle of Wight. Councillor Michael Lilly and Councillor Nick Stewart have been selected as the Liberal Democrats' prospective parliamentary candidates. Councillor Lilly will do battle for Isle of Wight East, while Councillor Stewart will fight for Isle of Wight West. The last Isle of Wight Liberal Democrat MP was Peter Brand, who served between 1997 and 2001 and died last year. This year is the 50th anniversary of Liberal Stephen Ross first being elected as MP in 1974. He was in the role for 13 years. Councillor Lilly said he remembered witnessing Ross's victory as a schoolboy in 1974. Like Steve, I am an established Isle of Wight councillor and have a track record including four years as Mayor of Ryde. I live in East White and I passionately love this beautiful part of the island from Wooden Creek to Ventnor. I love its people, nature, beaches and spirit. I firmly believe we can replicate Steve Ross's great victory. Councillor Stewart said it was great honour to be selected. I have tackled many issues as ward councillor, such as supporting flood-hit local residents, fighting unsuitable developments and campaigning to save the military road. £10,000 Harry Potter charity donation. A first edition copy of Harry Potter book, estimated to be worth £10,000, has been gifted to an island charity. As if by magic, the Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone book was left at one of OSPCA Al White shops by a mysterious donor. A world-renowned expert on the paperbacks described it as being in exceptional condition and said it would be very difficult to find another copy that's as well preserved as this one. After noticing the donation 
an, an OSPCA Alawite volunteer, an avid fan of the Smash Hit franchise, checked for well-known markers on a first edition and saw the book had them all. Rebecca Busby, fundraising, marketing and engaging officer at the OSPCA Alawite branch, said, She called me and I could hear her excitement as she said, I can't believe it. We have a Harry Potter first edition. After making the discovery, OSPCA Alawite staff called Jim Spencer of Hanson Auctioneers. He assessed the book and thanks to its exceptional condition, estimated its value at 7,000 to 10,000 pounds. Money raised will go to the island branch of the OSPCA. Jim said it would be very difficult to find another copy that's as well preserved as this one, so it deserves to, to set tails wagging at auction. This book represents the beginning of the Harry Potter phenomenon. Not many paperbacks published in the 1990s have the potential to fetch thousands of pounds at auction. Nobody predicted the huge popularity of Harry Potter, so these books were printed on cheap paper stock. This coupled with the fact it's a children's book means most examples are in very poor condition, showing signs of being swung about in a school rucksack, full of doodles, stained from orange squash, or at the very least, faded at the spine from sunlight hitting the bookcase. One of the dogs who will benefit from the sale of the book is an other Harry, an 11 months old, Kokapu type, currently in the OSPCA's care. The book is due to go under the hammer at the end of the month. And now we go on to white memories and nostalgia. Cheers to our lost locals. Islanders have been reminiscing about Isle of Wight pubs and bars from years gone by. Whether they are still open under a new name or have been demolished. The county press has delved into the archives to look at a few of those mentioned. On Facebook, we asked, which island bar do you miss the most? We've already done one story on your top pubs from the past, but we had so many entries we've decided to do another. So here's to another trip down memory lane. The Princess Royal in Newport, once a backstreet pub, not far from the centre of Newport, Princess Royal is now houses. In its heyday, the pub on Cross Lane showed live sports and had a pool table. It closed its doors around 2015 and by 2016 it was converted to homes. Slide to have a look at what the pub used to look like and what it looks like now. Lloyd's and Chicago Rock, Newport, before becoming Fever and Boutique. The building in Newport's multiplex was occupied by Weatherspoons, Lloyd's and then a Chicago Rock. 
as Chicago Rock, it was a party hotspot at night and by day it was a cafe. Lloyd closed not long after Man in the Moon Another Weatherspoons opened in Newport High Street. To this day, the building on Coppins Bridge is still a popular place to dance the night away. Shoulder of Mutton, Newport, a once familiar site on the corner of Coppins Bridge, Newport. Shoulder of Mutton has since been demolished. The building itself was knocked down in 2011, but the pub, which operated as the publican, was closed years before that. After the demolition, developers wanted to build a block of flats, but plans never came to fruition. Today, the site has been left derelict. The Countryman near Bryston. After closing its doors, the former Countryman pub near Bryston sat derelict for a number of years. In 2013, planning permission was granted to change the use of the building to a single residential dwelling. In 2020, the county press reported the building had been demolished. Fast forward to today, and the land is now occupied by two homes. Golden Era for Alawite Churches Sundown, Shanklin and Ventnor grew after the railways reached those towns. The seaside holiday became the fashion for the middle class, and the, build, and the builders, brickmakers, and stonemasons were much in demand. What had been small villages expanded into the countryside, and new churches and chapels soon followed. Churches were enlarged to cater for greater congregations, some several times during the Victorian period. At St. Saviour in Shanklin, island architect Thomas Hillier started building in 1867. Then, an o- then other architects designed various extensions so that the building was not completed until 1903. St. Paul's Church, Shanklin, also took several years to complete to its present form, although it suffered damage from bombing in 1943. There, the architect was C.L. Locke, who also designed St. John's Church in Carter Street, Sandown, built in 1881. Local stone was used. At Ventnor, Holy Trinity Church was built in 1861 with a fine spire above the spacious interior. At Roxall, the church of St. John the Evangelist was designed by Ventnor architect T.R. Saunders in 1877, with a tower and short spire added in 1911. The most prominent of later Victorian churches is All Saints Ride. High on the hill, it was designed by one of the most famous church architects of the period, Sir George Gilbert Scott. He created the main part of the church, which took three years to build, starting in 1869. Swanage Stone 
was brought here to build it, with bath stone used for the dressings. Internally, all Scott's elaborate work remains. The nave has impressive arches to the north and south aisles. The rear dust behind the altar is of white marble. Scott's font and pulpit are very ornate, both making use of black marble columns. The tower and spire were designed by Scott's son, John Allred Scott, in 1881. This is a landmark when looking at ride from the Solent. The Royal Victoria Yacht Club paid, sev- paid towards the building of the church in memory of Prince Albert. A recent useful addition to the All Saints Church has been the creation of a day in front of the chancel steps. Tiles were sought from the continent to match the originals so the character of Sir Gilbert Scott's original design has not been compromised. This year should see the completion of the restoration of Newport Minster. Much work has been carried out over the last few years, much of it due to the stone that was used. This was from Caen in France and is quite soft, hence the deterioration of the external work. Unfortunately, because of its listed status, the same type of stone has had to be used in the restoration. So in another 160 years, it will have deteriorated again as wind and rain will take their toll. We look forward to being able to visit and use the minster. Many churches are looking at their present role in modern society. Although there are dwindling congregations, often the church is the center of a community and provides a large central gathering space that can be used by people of all faiths or none. My View by Leanne Ponferradon Giving Young People a Voice The county press is working hard to champion youth voices and I found that out through personal experience being part of the Young Reporter Scheme. On Friday, January the 19th, the island sixth form uploaded an Instagram post announcing their involvement with the Young Reporter Scheme. Initially, my college, Christ the King College, was the only school to embark on the course, joining both the four-month course in early 2023 and the eight-month course that is currently ongoing. I have taken part in both. I spoke to Rebecca Beaner, a young reporter at Christ the King College, who was also glad to see the Isle of Wight represented more diversely. She told me, There are so many schools on the mainland that are taking part in the scheme, so it's great to see multiple schools on the island represent our input. Moreover, on Monday, January the 15th, the County Press editors, Laurie Little and Lucy Morgan, invited the newspaper's avid readers 
to discuss its features. They made sure they included students across the island, and I was one of them. Another student was Ethan Wenham, who, like me, is also an Isle of Wight youth councillor. It is no surprise the topic of youth voice was prevalent. The two youth councillors urged the county press to include young people's work in the printed publications. You'll actually see evidence on that on the page 53 this week, as well as in this column. We shared our ideas, including an Isle of Wight Youth Council's chairs column, similar to the MPs, or the Isle of Wight Council leaders column, who represent the views of local adolescents and share youth counselling activities. Ethan, who attends the island a sixth form, emphasised the importance of youth voice within journalism. He said, consulting young people is essential to provide a fresh perspective on issues. Our voices are often silenced and are always there as we quietly make our points. Journalism is an opportunity for these to be shared. As a young reporter myself, it was a privilege to be invited to the County Press Readers' Panel. It's hugely exemplified how the editors are eager to prioritise your voice, as Laurie and Lucy responded positively to our input. I wholly agree with the comments made by Ethan at the Young Reporter Scheme has always been a fantastic way of sharing the incredible projects our local youth embarks on. More specifically, as a woman of colour, I am proud to represent the increasing ethnic culture and diversity on the Alawite. After the scheme finalises in April, I hope to continue to support the county press by whatever means possible. Two of the young reporters are spending time in the County Press newsroom in Pyle Street this week during half-term. One of them is Ethan, who spent two days working alongside the reporters in their office. He said, My work experience at the County Press was incredibly eventful and thoroughly enjoyable. I was given invaluable experience in the field of court reporting and roving journalism that I would not otherwise be able to obtain from elsewhere. In addition to that, the experience allowed me to add to my portfolio of articles and allowed them to get a wider audience than would have otherwise been possible with a young reporter's scheme. And now public information by Councillor Phil Jordan. Council has been very careful and prudent with budget. <clears throat> On Wednesday, February the 5th, we published our budget papers and proposals for 2024-25. We received late news of funding and, after much work and data gathering that has been supplied to government over the past year, we were advised that an extra three million of grant funding, plus an extra one million for social care, has been made to the Isle of Wight Council, 
which we could factor into the finances of the council this coming year. Extra money is always useful, as we all know, but this amount was not related to the levels of extra funding we had thought we evidenced to government and was needed to help us deliver the services we must have on our island, as opposed to the costs involved in delivering the same services anywhere on the mainland. Since 2010, continual yearly cuts to our funding has meant savings of around 3 million every year have had to be made, and the Isle of Wight Council has made total savings of over 97 million, which has been very difficult to send positive messages to our residents as a result. This year, however, we are creating new opportunities for community grants and we are committed to supporting our towns and parishes by investing over £200,000. We are increasingly gully cleaning in the worst flooded areas to help our residents there. We are backing local businesses opportunities by partnering with Solent Partners and investing around 250000 for the first time in 13 consecutive years, we have not increased parking charges and we will not increase charges to use the floating bridge either. Because we have been careful and prudent and have managed the council's finances responsible for the past three years now, we have not added to the council's debt in taking out loans. In fact, we have reduced our borrowing. In addition, some loans the council hold are set to end this coming year. What this means is we have not made the burden on the taxpayer any greater since 2021. In fact, we have reduced it. This has helped us to help our residents and we are continuing to support those residents needing cross-solent travel for some NHS appointments for paying for their travel. This is in addition to free parking through the same scheme at car parks nearest to ferry terminals for NHS treatment travellers. We are also spending £1.8 million minimum to provide affordable housing in 2024 and 2025 and we are investing in coastal protection to help those affected by erosion. These are the issues that we recognise as priorities and concerns for residents, which form just part of the overall investment in the island. Full Council will vote on these proposals on February the 28th. Now what's on? The Haunting at Key Arts Key Arts Anthony Mingela Theatre in Newport is showcasing a gripping adaptation of a Charles Dickens' most haunting works on Wednesday the 21st of February that promise to have you on the edge of your seat. The haunting is set in an ancient crumbling mansion where two men stumble across a dark and terrifying secret that will change their lives forever. When a book dealer, David Field, is employed by Lord Grey to catalogue the estate's library, he finds an incredible array of rare books. 
However, as a series of strange and unexplained events conspire to keep Filde from his work, he realizes that if he is to convince his skeptical employer that the mysterious phenomena he is experiencing are real, they must journey together to the very edge of terror to discover the source of the terrifying visitations. The haunting features Neil James as Lord Grey and Ross Muir as David Field. The play is directed by Nick Young. The cafe and bar will be open from 6 p.m. Doors open at half past 7 p.m. and the show starts at 8 p.m. Tickets cost £17.75. On Tuesday the 5th of March, the extraordinary history of the truly rotten boroughs of Yarmouth and Newtown at 11 o'clock a.m. The cost is £5 per ticket. Spectacular political corruption illustrated and explained by Kevin Shaw of Carisbrook Castle Museum, Castle Hill, Newport. For more details, go to info at carisbrookcastlemuseum.org.uk or call them on 523-112. Documentary showing. The Ventner Film Society are showing the documentary The Nettle Dress on Tuesday the 20th of February at half past 7pm. A textile artist spends seven years making a dress from locally foraged nettles as he comes to terms with the death of his wife. The film is certificate 12A and lasts one hour and eight minutes. Six pounds on the door, cash only. And now we go on to our letters. Not all second homeowners have pots of cash. By C.M. Lansley of Shanklin. The council would be voting on February the 28th whether to double the council tax for second homeowners. There are many on the island who will not be able to stay if this goes ahead. Not all second homeowners have pots of cash. Many choose second homes in the UK as an alternative to spending cash on overseas holidays. Many also choose the island because of centuries old family heritage. My family descendants in the retail business go back generations, including my great uncle Morris Stores in Newport. My great uncle Adolphus William Stark from East Cows was a Royal Naval officer lost at sea in 1917 aboard HMS Drake. My father, Peter Stark Lansley from Wootton, also served his country as a radio officer in the Merchant Navy, surviving a torpedo attack on his ship MV 1B in 1940. I feel it would be an affront to their memory to force their descendants off the island. I have also contributed to the island's community by giving talks to local organisations on my father, Peter Starks Lansley's book, Pon My Puff, a childhood in 1920s, Isle of Wight, which I published in 2021. I purchased a small muse cottage on the island to maintain my link with my heritage, 
It had been on the market for more than six months when I viewed it, so I did not prevent any island residents from buying it. Currently, there seems to be considerable amount of low-cost properties which have been on the market for six months or more. Right move. I strongly urge councillors to vote against this proposal so that those second homeowners who spend time on the island every month of the year contributing to the island life and its economy will not be unfairly penalised or driven off the island. I believe they may make a significant contribution to the island economy and employment and they are not all hooray Henrys just coming over for weekends and holidays. Beware the, sc- the Facebook Scammers by Sally Ash, Allo White Against Scams Partnership. An investigation by the fraud department of a national bank has found that more than a third of adverts on Facebook marketplace could be scams, with UK consumers losing nearly £60 million in 2023. The investigation calculated that 34% of their listings were fraudulent, including directing buyers to fake websites and refusing permission to view the item in person, demanding advance fees. They also found items such as phones and cars advertised as brand new for hundreds or thousands of pounds less than their retail price. The investigator was directed to a scam website to make the payment. The most common items used are vehicles and parts, phones, shoes and clothing, games, consoles and accessories, concert and festival tickets, furnitures and appliances. Here are some top tips. Scammers will clone innocent people's Facebook page to carry out their scams. If you're looking to buy something on Facebook Marketplace, try to keep it local so you can see the item in person. If this is refused, then don't engage in the transaction. Be wary of larger free items that can be delivered for a fee. Quite often, the item doesn't exist and you pay the delivery up front, and nothing arrives. Stop and think before making the purchase. If someone sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Reporting a scam. For advice on scams, call the Citizen Advice Bureau on 0808 Report a scam with action. Top Deck View by Julian R. Moody of Sandown. With the main road closed, I was initially surprised to see the destination boards on bus routes 7 and 12 showing Allen Bay. Surely they should have said Totland. Buses could go no further. Wrong. Southern Vectors has found a way are built on minor roads, but congratulations all around for making the effort. Then the delightful return journey to Newport on Route 12, particularly the section between Freshwater Bay and Brook. Quite spectacular from the top deck. Many thanks, Southern Vectors. Bring a spare. 
How many weeks does it take to mend a set of traffic lights? Well, at least four, depending when the men from the mainland can either find the time or the spare part to repair the lights at the down-end crossroads. It beggars belief that we have to rely on somebody across the Solent to fix the lights at such a busy junction. Let's hope when he has the necessary part, he brings a spare for the next time another careless driver hits them. Because, rest assured, there are more than enough idiots on our roads capable of doing so. This was a letter from Barbara Spencer of Wright. And it's goodbye from Susan. And goodbye from Gerard. The BBC In Touch programme follows, and the scaffolding news follows that. Front cover. Newsletter, Winter 2024. Your local sight loss charity. Spotlight on Viv. Meet volunteer Alison. Short story writing competition award ceremony. Member question, mobility. Living well with sight loss. Project Fusion. Front cover shows a photograph of the celebrities, Chesney Hawks, Richard Cadell, Debbie McGee and R.C. Bridgestock from the short story writing competition and the entertainers from the award ceremony, Ben Stubbs, Harry Lee, Huxley Magician and Solent Singers. Hello, everyone, and belated good wishes for 2024. As usual, we hope to fill your diary with informative and enjoyable occasions and activities for this year. We have made a good start. There is so much to read in this newsletter. I'm sure you'll find something of interest. Looking back a little, the story writing competition awards evening just before Christmas was so entertaining and you will be able to read all the details in the following article. The standard gets higher every year. I'm sure you'll find the comparison between the two agencies that supply guide dogs full of interesting detail. I don't think many of us knew that there was a choice. It's good to know so that informed decisions can be made. All our activities are starting again. You will find all their details listed in the newsletter. We have so much variety now and we are always open to new suggestions of group interests you might like us to provide. Please talk it over with any of the staff or trustees. Now, please, may I put in a special plea for volunteers? We have such a loyal group who do such wonderful work, whether it's befriending in our dress agency, activities or our incredible knitters. Do check out the patterns for our Easter fundraiser. The patterns for the animal Easter egg covers are just so cute. If you know of anyone who has a few hours to spare, we will be delighted to hear from them. Once again, my grateful thanks to you all for making the charity such a vibrant community. The staff reports offer so much. 
I always find them so inspiring. Hearing about their particular area of expertise, and there's always so much to learn. My grateful thanks to you all. You're always welcoming, patient and helpful. Such a great team. Finally, my thanks to the trustees. There are many different skills we use from each and every one of them, and I'm so grateful to them for such a generous donation of their time. This is Lisa reading the CEO update. Happy New Year. Am I allowed to still say that? With 2024 comes our member survey. In 2020, we phoned every single member and asked them a few simple questions based around the services we offered at the time what additional services people wanted and how we could help them as an individual in their daily lives. We took everything on board and there have been major changes in the last four years. For example, we were interacting with 251 people per week in December 2019 compared to 452 in December 2023. But things cannot and will not stand still. It is time to call everyone again and make sure we are still on track with what people both want and need from us. So we are now devising a short survey and will be calling everybody later in the spring. With over 730 members compared to 504 in 2020, this is a project we need to plan to ensure we have consistent, useful results. We will be recruiting volunteers to help make the calls. So if you think you can help, please do get in touch. Also looking forward, we have set a plan for the year with lots of the key dates organised already. These include WhiteSense client and Site for White member feedback and chat meetings, scheduled quarterly from March onwards and the quarterly Living Well with Site Loss group, which starts in February. On the 29th of July, we will be holding an open day at Millbrook House to celebrate both our members and volunteers. And our external community low vision and low hearing day will be on the 24th of September. We hope to see you there. Lisa. Members activities. Weekly. By appointment, we have Sam on hand to give one-to-one help with accessibility features on your computer, laptop, tablet or phone. It is essential you pre-book, so please call ahead. Please note. We will help as much as we can, but if you are looking for lessons on how to use a computer, then please contact us for Age UK course dates. Monday. Swimming at Medina Leisure Centre, Newport, term time only, between 1.15pm and 2.15pm. The cost is £6 and £2.50 local transport. Newport area, but £3.50 for wider transport, i.e. the ride area. Tuesday, yoga at Millbrook House between 1.45pm and 2.45pm. Come along and try gentle yoga, just £4, which includes refreshments. Wednesday, coffee and chat at Millbrook House between 10am and 11.30am. All are welcome to join us for coffee and cake. The cost is £2 and the group is open to everyone. We have regular visitors to this group, for example, the ECLO, the Macula Society and many others.
so please call Susan for more information. Thursday, mix and mingle at Millbrook House between 10.30am and 2pm. Planned activities include crafts, quizzes and entertainment. The cost is £4 plus £3.50 for transport if required. Pre-booking is essential. The next Site for White members feedback and chat is Wednesday the 27th of March at 11.30am. Fortnightly tennis is held at Ride Mead Tennis Club on a Monday between 9.30am and 10.30am. The club is behind Yalfs in Church Lane Ride. Volunteers of the club are on hand to assist. This is weather dependent through the winter. Monthly groups. First Tuesday of the month. God's Hill Coffee Morning, 10.30am to 12pm, held at the Old Smithy Coffee Shop, God's Hill. Volunteers Yvonne and Linda will be on hand to chat every month. The first Thursday of the month, audio book group held at the Lord Louis Library, Newport, between 2pm and 3pm. This group is free to attend. You will receive a USB stick or CD from the RNIB and then the group will discuss the book at the following meeting. Second Tuesday of the month, Our Place Community Cafe at West White Sports Centre, Mower Place, Freshwater, 10.30am. A member of staff will always be there. Ion Social will be held once a month. Our first meeting of 2024 is on Wednesday the 28th of February at Millbrook House, where we are welcoming Rachel from Natural Enterprise, talking about gift to nature work on the Isle of Wight. The group is open to everyone, members, volunteers and friends. So please come along and support us. The cost is £3, which includes refreshments. Fourth Thursday of the month. Our place in Ventnor at St. Catherine's Church, Ventnor, between 10.30am and 1.30pm. A member of staff will be on hand. Last Friday of the month, Striders is for members who enjoy walking. The walk is normally between four and six miles, depending on the route and location. The cost is £4 plus £3.50 for transport. Last Sunday of the month, Golf at Westridge Golf Centre Ride. Members enjoy 45 minutes on the driving range with an instructor available to help the complete novice to those playing regularly. It is usually the last Sunday of the month, but always call the office to confirm. Activities do get booked up, so please do not hesitate to call us to book your place. Where possible, we provide transport subject to numbers and vehicle availability. If you have any suggestions for an activity, please do come forward and let us know so we can endeavour to accommodate when we can, or if you wish to volunteer to help others, again, do not hesitate to contact us on 52205. Thank you to everyone who completed the questionnaire from the last newsletter relating to members' activities. We now have a base to work on and hopefully arrange suitable activities and outings to meet members' requests. The replies we received were very mixed, but it is very clear that transport is a vital part of anything we arrange 
and we can only provide transport if we have volunteers available to assist. Announcements will be made via our website, Talking News, newsletter of any one-off activities or events. Thank you, Susan. A hundred club. Winners this time are Chris, Lorna and PJ. Congratulations. A very warm welcome to Jaime and Steve. If you'd like to join the Site for White 100 Club, it is just £2 a month and you are helping to support us as well. Volunteers update. Welcome and Happy New Year to you all and a very special welcome to all our new volunteers to this newsletter. I'm very fortunate to have so many fantastic volunteers to help and assist with all the activities, events and services we provide throughout the year. Since the last newsletter, our volunteers have been busy covering bucket collections, short break to Warners, helping with our various groups, knitting for our Christmas fundraiser, reading the news, serving in our dress for less shop, driving, the list is endless. Our calendar is now booked with dates for the f- and the first date for our volunteer catch up is Tuesday, March the 19th at 10am here at Millbrook House. Please come along and meet fellow volunteers. Staff will be on hand to serve homemade cake and coffee. We attended the Isle of Wight Volunteers Fair in January at the Riverside Centre. It was a success with plenty of interest and networking. I thank the four volunteers who came along and supported me. We had an enjoyable day. As always, if anyone knows someone who has a few hours spare, Please tell them about our wonderful charity and perhaps they would like to volunteer for us, helping out once a week or just once a month. Please ask them to call me for an informal chat on 522205. Thank you as always, Susan. The Bryston Tree Festival returned this year following a break of several years and wow, it did not disappoint Sight for White displayed their tree in the Wilberforce Hall, which looked beautiful in the blue and gold colours of the charity. Susan made a tree skirt to go around the bottom, and the decorations on the tree depicted various activities and groups the charity hold each month. Be My Eyes, read by Elaine. Be My Eyes is a free app that was launched a few years ago to support people living with a visual impairment. It uses the back-facing camera on your phone to link you with a registered volunteer who can assist you in completing quick visual tasks. For example, reading an expiry date on your milk, pairing your socks, checking the cooking instructions on the back of a packet, or spotting that pound coin you have dropped. By getting you to move your phone left and right, the volunteer can use the camera to support you. The calls are completely anonymous and free, and you can literally just ask a question, get a reply, then hang up. There is no need for social pleasantries or any form of conversation. Last year, a new feature was added to allow you to add your own friends and family to your own list of contacts, if you prefer. Now, however, a further development has been added. Be My Eyes has added an AI, artificial intelligence. You can now hold up your phone, take a picture 
and the app will give you a very accurate description of your surroundings, including any people, what they are wearing and what they are doing. It really is very clever. If you would like further information or to see the app in action, please give us a call and Sam, our technical support officer, will assist you. Ruth Holling said. Call out to members read by Paula. Are you living with stickler syndrome? We have been asked by a family who is living with this if any of our members are also living with it with a view to making contact. Stickler syndrome is a group of hereditary conditions characterised by distinctive facial appearance, eye abnormalities, hearing loss and joint problems. These signs and symptoms vary widely among affected individuals. If you would like to make contact, please contact Lisa at the office on 01983 522205. This is Lisa reading Newport and Health Wellbeing Centre. We have been invited to visit the Newport Health and Wellbeing Centre, which is due to open soon, to give our members the chance to comment on any helpful suggestions to ease things for people to use the centre with both sight and hearing impairments. I'm really pleased that the NHS have engaged with us and would really welcome a variety of people to attend to cover a wide range of ideas of how things can be made more accessible. If you can attend on the 12th of March, please call Lisa on 52205. Thank you, Lisa. Banish the winter blues. Don't let winter get you down. Here are some top tips you can do to beat the winter blues. Keep active. Whilst you'll probably feel like curling up on the couch in winter, it's good to keep as active as you can to combat the winter blues. Regular exercise will keep you positive and feeling like you're achieving something good for yourself. Exercising also releases your happy hormone, serotonin. So not only is it good for your health, it makes you feel good too. Keep in touch. Making sure you keep in touch with your friends and family over the winter period helps you stay more connected to the world and feel less isolated. If you would like to be paired up with a befriender, then please do not hesitate to contact me. Eat healthily. It's easy to turn to comfort food when you're not feeling at your best, but make sure that you're not just mindlessly eating your way through that share bag of crisps. Try and be more conscious about your eating habits in the winter months. Making sure you're getting your five a day is a good place to start so you can try to get the right nutrients to keep your energy and immune system boosted. Stick on something upbeat. Turn over the slow ballads. Research has shown that listening and dancing to some cheerful, upbeat music can improve your mood even after the song ends. The same can also be said for films and TV shows. Putting your favourite feel-good comedy or rom-com could help you laugh away those seasonal blues. Thank you, Elaine. Deaf-blind support officer. Red and white canes. You may already be very familiar with the white cane 
and that it represents the user has a visual impairment. It is less well known that a white cane with red stripes indicates that the user also has a hearing loss. It is important that someone who has a dual sensory loss can alert others to this. As with white canes, they come in varying sizes, ranging from a symbol cane, which is carried in your hand, and as the name suggests, is a symbol that the user has a sensory loss. If, however, the user requires a walking stick to weight bear, then a red and white walking stick is available. This, like the single cane, alerts others that the user has a dual sensory loss. These are the type of cane and stick that can be issued by the sensory service assessors. If someone requires any other type of cane, which are also available in red and white, they would need to have specialist training and to use these with our rehabilitation officer for visual impairment. If you already have a white cane or a walking stick and also have a hearing loss, red strips can be added to your existing cane or walking stick. Please contact the sensory service and any of the white sense team will be able to help you with this. Karen Chessel. This is Alison reading my article called Meet Volunteer Alison. I was born and brought up in the black country in the West Midlands. The soundtrack to my early life was the deep thud of the nearby foundry and factory hooters. My childhood was happy and optimistic and my sister and I spent most of our time in the oasis that was our local park. As we grew up, our community became home to people from Britain's former colonies. My best friend at junior school was a Hindu and another close friend was a Sikh. I loved languages, especially French, which has kept me in a job most of my working life as a teacher. I had considered training to teach visually impaired pupils at Licky Grange School for the Blind near Birmingham. But by then, I had met the man who would become my husband, and he lived on the Isle of Wight. We met on a blind date. Please excuse that expression. When I came to Shanklin to work as a waitress in my summer holiday from school. We married in 1980 and I began my first teaching job at Node Hill Middle School in Year 7. My class included pupils from a broad rural catchment. One day, a lad told me that there was a Jasper annoying him in the classroom, so I asked Jasper to come and speak to me. No one moved. I, I didn't know that Jasper is an Isle of Wight word for a wasp. After 20 years in teaching, I tried something different, supporting those on the margins of life, and I worked in social responsibility for the Portsmouth Diocese of the Church of England, then the Adult Essential Skills Support Agency, and as a lay worker in the Methodist Church. 
Ten years later, I returned to teaching French in primary schools. This has really helped when I volunteer with Sight for White's education programme, which I really enjoy. Encouraging children to look after their eyes and eyesight and to understand sight loss and the help and support that is available for independent living is so important. We are often asked questions in the staff room too about concerns for sight loss problems in family members. I started volunteering in 2019 when I began reading the talking news. During Covid, I began recording articles on my mobile phone. The only drawback is noise interference from the doorbell, a nearby mower or even a spitfire flowing low overhead. If I have a difficult word, I take a run up at it verbally. I'm part of the volunteer team knitting the little chicks containing cream eggs at Easter and Christmas hats containing a chocolate orange. Last year, I was invited to consider becoming a trustee of Sight for White, which is a real privilege. I'm on a steep learning curve and trying to dip into as many of the activities and events as I can to get a full understanding of this wonderful local charity supporting people with sight loss. Living Well with Sight Loss. In 2022, we received funding to start up Living Well with Sight Loss, which is run by Ruth, one of our trustees. Due to its ongoing success, although the funding has now finished, we have been selected to continue to run it for the island. Whether you are born with sight loss, have a sudden change, or living with a progressive condition, facing sight loss is undoubtedly a challenging time. The information and help you will receive from Ruth covers the following key areas. Session 1, Part 1. Starting out. The Certificate of Visual Impairment process. Should you register? How do you register? And what are the other main eye care services? What is an ECLO and how can they help? Part 2. In the home. Your white sense visit and what it involves. Looking at how to regain independence in daily living and what aids and technology are available. This includes the importance of lighting, labelling and how talking tech can help. Part 3. Out and about. Talking about independent mobility using transport and the concessions available. What is a Rovie and how can they help? What canes are available and how guide dogs works? Part 4. Looking after ourselves. General help on eye health, your own well-being, local social and leisure activities and your next steps. Finally, volunteering opportunities and how this can help you. We will be running courses on the following dates in 2024. They are all on Fridays, the 9th of February, 10th of May, 6th of September and finally the 22nd of November, 10am to 1pm at Millbrook House. Feedback and chat. Each quarter we run our feedback and chat meeting. It is a completely open invitation to all our Sight for White members and White Sense clients to come and talk directly to staff including myself and Lisa, about any ideas, queries or thoughts you have about our aspect of the service we offer. For example, 
In our last Site for White meeting, we discussed eyes, ideas for the Eye on Social format for 2024 and how we can offer training to Southern Vectors drivers to help our members. At the last White Sense meeting, we discussed setting up island-wide coffee meetups for people living with hearing loss, which will be launched later this month. Dates for 2024 with all meeting on Wednesdays at 11.30am after the coffee morning at Millbrook House. Site for White, 27th of March, 26th of June, 25th of September and the 4th of December. White Sense, 20th of March, 19th of June, 18th of September, 27th of November. Short Story Writing Competition Award Ceremony 2023. What a fabulous evening we had for this year's Short Story Writing Competition Award Ceremony. The doors opened at 6.30pm and, as people arrived, they were greeted by the melodic tones of the Solent Singers, who sang Christmas carols until the ceremony started at 7pm. Lisa Hollyhead, CEO, opened the evening and handed over to Chris Kane, competition organiser, who said a few words. Chris then handed over to our genial host and master of ceremonies, Maurice Kuchuk. The High Sheriff, Dawn Haig Thomas, presented the Under-18s Awards. Under-8s winner, Olive Miller with her story, The Lost Teddy. Olive won a teddy bear and chocolates kindly donated by Waitrose and White Business Services. Olive's story was recorded by Richard Cadell. 8-11's winner, Penelope Harwood with her story, Year 3000. Penelope won an Amazon voucher kindly donated by Tesco. She also had her story recorded by Carol Bridgestock. Penelope was unable to attend, but collected her prize and certificate and had her photo taken with Chris Kane. 12-17's winner, Dominic Finch with his story, Clearing Mist. Dominic won a voucher kindly donated by Comma Coffee. Dominic's story was also recorded by Bob Bridstock. Before the Adana Minghella Award and 18 plus category were announced, one of our mystery judges wanted to award a certificate of merit for a story that didn't quite make the winning category, but warranted a mention. Emma Harris-Silk was the winner, but unable to attend the ceremony. Idana Minghella Award. The winner was Juliet Bell with her story, A Long Way Down. Juliet won a voucher kindly donated by Ventnor Botanic Garden. She also had her story recorded by Chesney Hawks. Joya Minghella Giddens presented the award. 18 plus winner. Marguerite Howick with her story, Having the Will to Change. Marguerite won a Waterstones voucher kindly donated by White Computers and her story recorded by Debbie McGee. Marguerite was in New York, so unable to attend, but sent a representative, George, on her behalf. In addition to entertainment from the Solent Singers, we also had Huxley Magician, Harry Lee and Ben Stubbs perform to a full house. We raised over £700. Education update. 
Since the last education programme update, we have been to Braiding Primary to their Key Stage 1 and Lower Key Stage 2. We've been to Gurnard Primary to their two Year 2 classes and their two Year 6 classes. Then finally, we went to Greenmount Primary to their two Year 4 classes, two Year 5 classes and two Year 6 classes. So far, the next schools interested are Gatton and Lake Primary. This will be the third time we have visited their school. We will be learning with their Year 3 and Year 6 classes. Also, Nettleston and Broadley Primary would like us to return. Since the programme started, we have now delivered the sessions to over 1,500 children and been to 19 schools across the Isle of Wight. Thank you to all the schools who have helped us to spread the importance of keeping your eyes healthy. I have a lovely team of volunteers that come along with me to the schools. I appreciate all the time they give me and all the effort they put in to make sure the children learn as much as they can in their time they have to learn with us. Thank you to all of them for their support. Jasmine. Members support. Firstly, wishing you all a very happy new year. For this newsletter, I thought as some of our members may have received an Amazon Echo speaker for Alexa over the festive period, we could look at just some of the ways they can support those with a visual impairment. So what or who is Alexa? Alexa is a voice controlled virtual assistant She can play audio, control your smart home, answer questions and engage your favourite services to keep you organised, informed, safe, connected and entertained through an Amazon speaker. Just by using your voice, you can tell the time or set an alarm, listen to audio books or the radio, get reminders for taking medication, etc. Add appointments to a calendar Make list of things to do or a shopping list. Call friends and family. Listen to Site for White's talking news and newsletter. Ask questions on literally anything, including maths. There are thousands of what are called skills to choose from. If you would like an Alexa or help with an existing Alexa, please do contact me. Karen. Hello. My name is Emma Downer. I am the new apprentice for being a Visual Rehabilitation Specialist, VRS. My course is two years long and officially starts in May. Currently, I am gaining experience working alongside the current Rovi, Pete, who will be supporting me throughout my learning. I have been doing lots of shadowing and watching how he coaches people who are cane users. I am also learning to read and type Braille. If anyone would like to support me with this, I'd be very grateful. I am based at Sight for White and I am working alongside the White Sense team who are showing me the ropes of everything they do and learning about the organisation and what support and activities Sight for White offers. I have enjoyed taking part in the activities. These include mix and mingle, yoga session, and a walk with the striders. Each activity has been enjoyable and I have loved meeting so many new people with their own stories to tell. At home, I like to spend time with my family. I have a little girl who is nearly four years old. I enjoy going out for walks with my crazy Springer Spaniel. I like to do sports. I grew up playing ice hockey and roller hockey. I no longer play, but I still enjoy skating at the roller rink. I like going swimming I enjoy any art and craft activities, such as clay and painting. 
My previous work experience includes working within care for all different ages and abilities. I have more experience working with special needs children and adults across the island. I have been Senko for a nursery for eight years, which I did enjoy doing and found rewarding. But since having my own child, I have felt I needed a changing career. So I decided to apply for this position and it's been the best decision I've made. I'd like to thank everyone for being so welcoming and friendly to me. I think I'm going to like it here. Tips for members. I used to struggle to chop vegetables until I found this tip. I use a stainless steel afro comb. I use it to hold the vegetable in place, then use the knife to cut in between each spike. I then sometimes spin it around to help me dice vegetables. I hope this helps someone else. Maggie from Totland. When I am trying to add sugar to my tea, I sometimes miss the cup. So I've decided to use sugar cubes instead, as it makes less mess. Graham from Newport. I have found labelling to be a great help to me. I got some labels from the stationery shop and used a marker pen to make my own bold and big letter labels. Leslie from Cows. If you have any tips to include in our newsletter, please let us know. Morrison's introduced measures aimed at helping vulnerable and elderly during crisis. Customers can order a delivery to their doorstep from a list of 47 essential items. Vulnerable customers offered assistance with extra staff that love to help. Morrison's announced a new dedicated telesales shopping service aimed specifically at helping to ensure vulnerable and elderly people can get the groceries they need. Customers who wish to place an order should phone 0345 611 6111 and select option 5. It is one of a number of measures that are being introduced in response to the coronavirus pandemic to ensure that no customer gets left behind. Morrison's has received many calls from customers who are self-isolating, elderly, vulnerable and not able to visit a shop. Some have little food in their store cupboard and are worried about how they will stock up when demand for home deliveries has been high. Some have never used online ordering. These customers will be able to place orders with Morrison's over the phone and the delivery will be made the following day by a store colleague from the local store. Often the store's community champion who is tasked with helping the community. They can choose from a takeaway menu of 47 essential groceries with options including milk, butter, eggs, potato, pasta, bananas, cornflakes and flour, pay for delivery on their doorstep via a mobile chip and pin device, refuse an item on delivery should they wish to do so but every effort will be made to match the customer's specific preferences. David Potts, Morrison's chief executive said, we are playing our full part in feeding the nation and ensuring those that are most in need can receive a delivery from a familiar face at Morrison's. This new telephone service will ensure that more people who can't leave their home to go shopping will be able to get a delivery. Additionally, the Morrison's community champions will be identifying customers who need support and offering it on a postcard through their door. Customers will be able to ring them directly if they need their shopping delivered. Those vulnerable and elderly customers who do come to the store 
will also be offered a helping hand from colleagues wearing Love to Help t-shirts. To help support this new service, Morrisons has invested in a van for every one of its 494 stores so that colleagues can drop the shopping off on a customer's doorstep. Morrisons is already helping elderly and vulnerable people by expanding its home delivery service and making more slots available to customers both through morrisons.com and Morrisons stores on Amazon Prime Now. It is also rolling out food boxes and has partnered up with Deliveroo to allow customers to order from a range of essentials delivered to their door by a Deliveroo rider on the same day. Spotlight on Viv, read by Susan and Chris. My name is Vivian Margaret Booth, but family and friends call me Viv. I was born in 1952 and blind from birth with only light perception, which has diminished over the years, although I can see shadow. My blindness was caused by being placed as a seven-month premature baby in an incubator where I was then given too much oxygen, which detached the retina. It is also the cause of the wonderfully talented Stevie Wonder's blindness as well. I'm the oldest of three children and have two younger brothers, both married, so have multiple nieces, nephews, great nieces and nephews. I was born in God's own country, as I call it, South Wales, at Morriston, a suburb of Swansea. I attended a mixed school for the blind and partially sighted at Bridgend, now the home of the South Wales Police Headquarters. There were no schools with special needs units as there are today, but in some ways we were at an advantage because the classes were smaller, approximately 10 to 12 pupils, and of course the teachers had more time to tutor us. My parents were travelling show people, so I am a proud showman's daughter and a Welsh woman, and I love to follow the rugby on Radio 5 Live. I'm very proud of my heritage. We attended most of the fairs of South and West Wales, and I couldn't have asked for a nicer, more hard-working and close-knit community. I am proud of my heritage. My parents took a big step and made sacrifices when we moved to the Isle of Wight, as they wanted us three children to have the advantages they didn't. I knew I would benefit the most if we lived permanently in one place because they knew that, as I grew up, I would be trained and obtain work more easily than if we had stayed where we were. They also knew that I would be taught routes to enable me to conduct myself with a long cane as independently as possible, which would benefit me. Everyone looks out for each other and in all the years we have lived apart from family and friends from that community, the love and loyalty we feel for each other has never diminished. We keep in regular contact and see them when we can. My dad managed the amusement arcade on Ride Seafront for his brother, who was a lot older than him when we moved to the island, and my mum ran her own gift shop. Our house was above and behind it. Though in a minority, I have heard prejudicial remarks being made about us as we have been referred to as gypsies and the ride mafia, but that is said in ignorance by those who don't know the first thing about us. I would like to pay tribute to Peter Venables, Rovi, at White Sense, 
who taught me roots when I first started work as a telephonist at what was then Robinson Jarvis and Rolf Solicitors in Ryde for over 30 years. This was an advantage to me after being tutored by Peter, as he explained to me how a compass worked and then everything clicked into place. I had wonderful colleagues and my switchboard had tactile indicators attached to them for my benefit instead of lights. Then when the silicon chip came into its own, the board had a certain amount of voice control and was semi-automatic and would use speech. Growing up on a fairground was wonderful as we covered the same route, attending most of the fairs of South and West Wales between Easter and what we called the back end run from October to the end of November. But when I was really little, we had fairs to attend over the Christmas period. Then the men of the family would work in the winter maintaining their equipment, such as stalls, rides and such, and would also often take on casual work, either selling firewood, as my dad did, where he also worked for the GPO, General Post Office, now Royal Mail, delivering parcels. Some of the young unmarried girls, such as some of my cousins, worked in factories and shops near to their winter quarters. We lived in a caravan, or trailer as they are now called, though ours was more like a wagon, pulled by my dad's matador lorry, and when the fairs closed at 10pm and we were moving on the next day to another place, everything had to be pulled down and packed away so bedtime didn't occur until the early hours and, of course, journeys were longer then as this was before motorways came into being. We kids would travel in the car with mum as Dad drove the lorry and some families who owned rides, like the Dodgems as we called them, had to make more than one trip. It was like living in a moving village as we travelled with the same families. Everyone was known as auntie and uncle, and when mum had her other children, when I was four, they would often take me off and play with me to give her more time with them. I loved sitting in the hot dog and candy floss kiosk with my auntie, and was fascinated by the candy machine when it spun the sugar. Her toffee apples were to die for. Then hot dogs and burgers came on the scene. But the rule was, I mustn't be filled up with rubbish in the mornings. I, was, I wouldn't eat my dinner. I loved going on the roads such as the Walser, Octopus, Twist Swing Boats, the Big Wheel and the Roundabouts, but never liked the Dodgems. I only remember one small fairground organ playing, but when my parents were young, there were plenty of them, and I always loved hearing them talking about it. I was only allowed to have rides, though, if it was quiet, and there weren't too many punters around, and, of course, all the latest music was played from speakers attached to the roofs of the rides, as we had to keep up with the latest songs, so people would often gather outside the rides, singing along, until they could board them. What a lucky girl I was. After leaving school, I attended the Royal Normal College for the Blind, then situated eight miles out of Shrewsbury, Shropshire, where the boys' college was about 10 miles from ours. The welfare officers, as they were called then, told us of a boy who also attended the college lived on the island. So my parents offered to give him a lift to college, as they wanted to take me there themselves, as I was new. And that's how I first met Eric Tuckwell, who has been a member of Sight for White for many years.
I did my CSE exams at school in Wales, but took my O-levels at Shrewsbury. And originally, I was assessed for doing shorthand and typing, but I couldn't visualise the tabulation work involved when typing because in those days, you had to work out the column work yourself. I only found out that those with my eye condition can't visualise space or distance. So when my parents asked why they had never been informed, they were told it wasn't the place of staff to tell them, which annoyed my parents as they always tried to help me as much as they could. And it made sense to me once I knew, as I've always memorised routes like learning a script, which was the best for me, as I have to learn everything parrot fashion. I then spent three months in Torquay, Devon at an assessment centre and was rightly assessed for telephony and the rest, as they say, is history. I trained at Pembridge Place, a college in London, and that is where I met Liz, Eric's lovely wife. And the three of us, I am glad to say, have been friends ever since. Fortunately, I was only home for a month after qualifying when I was interviewed for my job at the lawyers and got it, which I was so pleased about, as I didn't want to spend any more time away from home. As soon as social services were aware that I was born blind, my parents received a visit from a welfare officer who encouraged and suggested to them that they send me to a sunshine home for the blind. They were residential nurseries taking children in from the age of 18 months up to five years old, where they then attended the schools for the blind. My parents absolutely refused to let me go, as they said it was bad enough that I had to go away from home to school in the first place, but was understandable, and their view, quite rightly, was that the first five years of a child's life are the most important, because that is where they receive much love and understanding. They were told the usual rubbish, such as I would be mixing with other children and that I would be well looked after. And their reaction from my wonderful, sensible parents was who would pick up an 18 month old child in the night or whenever they needed comfort in the same way as a parent. They never bothered us again. It was sad in a way, because whilst I understand that for some families who may have been struggling, the friends I had at school who went to these homes always seemed insecure, always asking us if we liked them and were they our friends. I felt sorry for them. I developed a love for radio from an early age, listening to The Archers with Mum. In fact, I don't remember a time when I didn't hear it. We would listen to Radio Luxembourg and then when the pirate stations came, it was great. At school, we would get into trouble for smuggling our transistor radios under the bedclothes and would listen to it on our headphones. Mine got confiscated many times and I, like many of my friends, were always in trouble for talking too much in lessons about Motown, the Beatles and all the great 60s artists. What a great time to grow up in that decade. I was in the Beatles fan club and loved them. I developed a love of reading, which has never left me. And I'm also a sponsor of a programme broadcast on a station called Angel Radio, which you can get through Alexa, on the internet and on DAB Digital Radio. It is based in Havant and covers the Isle of Wight, Hampshire and Sussex. And everything they play is from the 1890s up to 1969. They feature comedy as well and receive no money from anyone. 
They raise their own funds by donations, PayPal, pay to play days where you can pledge as little as a pound or whatever you want for songs to be played of your choice. As I mentioned previously, I also love Radio 5 Live for the sport and documentaries, plus Radio 4 and 4 Extra for drama and good old Radio 2, plus local radio. I love whining and dining out with family and friends. I'm a great follower of Rugby Union, plus all the Olympic sports, and I love attending quizzes where I can. I also love going to the theatre and cinema, especially now that audio description is often featured. I've had a few setbacks through my life, as we all have, such as suffering from anxiety twice in my life, mostly when I was grieving for my parents, and because of work problems where, in the last year of working there, I was one of 23 people who left, so I know I'm not the only one who found the situation difficult. I suffered a heart attack six years ago, but I don't let it bother me as I'm on medication and life is what you make it. You only get out of it what you put into it. I also have osteoarthritis in three of my toes and am mildly, mildly asthmatic, but there is always someone else worse off and every day to me is a bonus. I became adventurous when I was at college in London, travelling home on the train for the weekends this was the first time I used the tube, usually with a crowd of college friends. We never worried about anyone attacking us and it was much easier to travel on the trains then with the assistants as there were always porters on the platforms, plus the guards who were all superb. The London cabbies were also great too, as when I came back to college on a Sunday night it was late and I promised my parents to use them and sometimes they wouldn't even take any money from me but I always insisted as they supported many charities. In 1981, I took the big step of flying for the first time alone at the age of 29, as I wanted to go to America to meet my pen friends who later became cassette friends and flew from Heathrow Airport to San Francisco, where I was met by my blind friend Linda, also blind from birth, who came from that area but lived in Sacramento. So she and her husband, who were sighted, took the trouble to do that and we used the Greyhound bus to go back to their home in Sacramento. I was made so welcome. Linda and I then flew to stay with her Aunt Marge, who lived in the San Francisco area. Both of us took off on our own, visiting Alcatraz, Chinatown, Fisherman's Wharf and walked all round Pier 39. We were then joined by her husband where we went to see the great jazz singer Lena Horne in concert and met her. She was lovely. Then I flew from the Bay Area, as they call it, after also meeting Linda's parents and visiting Berkeley where we walked among the eucalyptus and redwood trees and flew to Los Angeles where I was met by another friend, Terry, who was also blind and her husband who was sighted, where I stayed with them. We saw a television taping of the popular show Benson, went to Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm and ate out at fabulous restaurants. Then I met my third friend Talitha, who was also blind and from Detroit, Michigan, with her partner John, who drove her down as she wanted us to spend time together. We stayed with friends of theirs who also made me so welcome. 
We went to Las Vegas for a couple of days and as T, as she was called, went to school with Stevie Wonder and as another of her blind friends was working for him at the time, we ended up at his recording studio and just hung out with Stevie late into the night. He was really lovely, brilliant at taking off British accents and said how he was amazed how white people loved the Motown shows when they first came over here as most of the audiences in the States were black. He has never touched drugs and people around him are not allowed to use anything in his presence. I went to see him at the NEC in Birmingham later and asked if I could see him, although I thought he wouldn't remember me, but he did, and I gave him a coin when we first met, as it was the year King Charles married Princess Di. What a wonderful time I had. Also, I corresponded and met the lovely Sir Harry Seacombe, on a few occasions, as he was a Swansea boy and someone I knew from school, knew his brother, who was a vicar in Swansea. He once sent me tickets for my mum and I to see his show, The Three Musketeers in London, which was really lovely, kissing us both and his wife Myra, who was from Mumbles, where we came from, knew my dad slightly as they used to dance at the same dance hall, so I met him at other shows as well. He never forgot where he came from, just like the second Prince of Wales, Sir Tom Jones. My friend Terry, her husband and I met up again last year while they were staying in London and my niece and sister-in-law came with me where we almost met, also met my nephew so I could introduce her and her husband to them. It was so nice as she has good memories of staying with us and said she loved my parents and brothers. I suppose, in conclusion, I would say that I have been extremely lucky, being surrounded by love and kindness, and you always give back what is given to you, and no one should think that they can't do this or that because you can, you can within reason. When I left work, the society, Sight for White, were really kind and helpful. Leslie, who worked there, then taught me new routes, and I said I wanted to help in whatever way I could, so was a volunteer for some time, helping with store collections and attending some affairs at the society where I, along with others, brought items to sell and I served twice as a trustee. I'm not really political and even though I was made welcome, didn't feel comfortable but did my best at the time. We'd like to say a massive thank you to everyone who supported our annual raffle this year. We are delighted to announce that we've raised just over £1,800 in total from the ticket sales. Also, a huge thank you to all the local businesses who donated prizes for it. The draw took place at Millbrook House on Wednesday the 13th of December, where volunteers, members, staff and friends of the charity enjoyed festive refreshments. All prizes were collected or delivered before Christmas, and we thank Alan, our wonderful volunteer, who delivered several prizes around the island. Are you a knitter? We are once again looking for knitters to start knitting for our Easter fundraising campaign. Please ask for a pattern and pass on to a friend, relation or neighbour. Easter is early this year, the 31st of March. Selling our knitted items raises over £1,000 per year for us. Contact Susan on 522205 for a pattern. 
Alternatively, if you know a local business who could donate a cream egg to us for this fundraising event, please let us know. Advance notice. April's Eye on Social is on a Tuesday morning at the Inshore Lifeboat Centre. Based in East Cowes on the Isle of Wight, our Inshore Lifeboat Centre supplies and maintains over half of the lifeboats for all our lifeboat stations as well as our lifeguard units. What you'll experience on the tour. A free tour of the Inshore Lifeboat Centre lasts approximately 90 minutes, taking you through the different stages of build and refit that our lifeboats move through, including composite manufacture, rewiring and engine testing. You'll get to see purpose-built manufacturing and refit of Atlantic lifeboats, laminating shop, spray booth and welding bay, rubber workshop including CNC cutting machine, office and stores facilities and the interactive visitor and heritage centre. If you would like to book a space, please call Susan on 5 2205. Spaces are limited, so book early to avoid disappointment. This group is open to everyone, members, volunteers and friends of the charity. If enough people would like to have lunch in the nearby Lifeboat pub, then we can book a table. Please inform Susan on 5205. We will meet at East Cows at 10.15am, ready for the tour to start at 10.30am. Limited transport is available if required, so please let Susan know when booking. Turning off 3G network. The technology that provided the third generation, 3G, or mobile network service, is being switched off across the UK. Vodafone. Began in January 2024 and will be completely switched off by the end of February. EE. Began in January 2024 and will be completely switched off by the end of March. O2 will be completed during 2025 and 3 during 2024. How will all of this impact me? If you have an older phone that is only designed for 2G or 3G networks and no later generations, you may not be able to make phone calls, send messages or upload data in the area where it's been turned off. Contact your network provider if this happens. Alternative hearing aids. In this article, I thought it might be nice to discuss the different kinds of hearing aids available in the event of conventional hearing aids for whatever reason being unsuitable for a person. The bone-anchored hearing aid, known as Baja, is one such hearing aid. People with unilateral conductive hearing loss and outer ear deformity or persistent ear infections, for example, may benefit from this type of hearing aid. A Baja type hearing aid uses bone conduction to transmit the sound it picks up to the cochlea. The Baja has two parts, the stud or nowadays a magnetic plate and a small processor. For it to be effective, a stud or magnetic plate is surgically attached to the skull and the processor then attaches to the stud or the magnetic plate. The stud is rather like a popper that the processor connects to. If a magnetic plate is used, it will connect simply through magnetism.
The processor collects the sound and transmits it around the skull in the form of vibrations. It's these vibrations that activate the hair cells in the cochlea and allow the sound to be sent through the auditory nerve to the brain where it is perceived as real sound. Overleaf, I've written a few pros and cons of this type of hearing aid. However, the list is only an example and there may be additional pros and cons that need to be discussed with your doctor or audiologist if this is something that you think might be right for you. Pros. It can provide hearing support for 1. People who cannot use traditional hearing aids. 2. People with persistent ear infections or ear deformity. 3. People who struggle with unilateral hearing loss. 4. The skull is a huge bone, so this means that a Baha can give 360 degree awareness of sound and produces better sound quality for a lot of people. 5. It's more aesthetic due to its small size, so it's not as noticeable to other people. Cons. 1. It involves a surgical procedure under general anaesthetic, so there are risks associated with this. It's essential that these risks are given very careful consideration before a decision is made to go ahead. 2. There's a chance that the implanted portion of the Baha fails. 3. The stud, if used, needs to be kept clean, so care and attention to this area is crucial. If you think a Baha would help support your hearing loss, then it is imperative that you discuss this fully with your GP to ensure that it's a suitable option for you. Pros. It can provide hearing support for 1. People who cannot use traditional hearing aids. 2. People with persistent ear infections or ear deformity. 3. People who struggle with unilateral hearing loss. 4. The skull is a huge bone, so this means that a Baha can give 360 degree awareness of sound and produces better sound quality for a lot of people. 5. It's more aesthetic due to its small size, so it's not as noticeable to other people. Cons. 1. It involves a surgical procedure under general anaesthetic, so there are risks associated with this. It's essential that these risks are given very careful consideration before a decision is made to go ahead. 2. There's a chance that the implanted portion of the Baha fails. 3. The stud, if used, needs to be kept clean, so care and attention to this area is crucial. If you think a Baha would help support your hearing loss, then it is imperative that you discuss this fully with your GP to ensure that it's a suitable option for you. Member question, mobility. We've been asked by a member for an alternative to a guide dog from Guide Dogs. I have to admit to being surprised to find there is a UK alternatives. Seeing Dogs Alliance, offering seeing dogs. 
Both dogs have exactly the same legal rights. Both are trained and partnered by qualified trainers. So what are the differences and what are the similarities? The similarities. Both organisations are registered as members of the International Guide Dog Federation and Assistance Dog UK. All instructors for both organisations are fully qualified to the same standard. Both organisations have an assessment process to make sure a dog will be of benefit and that the dog's welfare can be accommodated and both have a waiting list. The differences. Funding. Guide dogs offer a fully funded option where you take the dog on long term loan and all vet and food bills are paid for by guide dogs whilst the dog is working. You never own the dog as such, but do have the option of keeping your dog after retirement if and only if that suits both yourself and the dog. Not everyone takes up the full funding. For example, some people purchase the food themselves. Seeing dogs sell the dog to you for £5, but you are responsible for its entire upkeep. You are strongly advised to insure your dog. It is therefore your choice what you choose to do with your companion once the time comes for their well-earned retirement. Puppies. Seeing dogs buy or are donated their puppies, they usually train Labradors, Retrievers and Crosses of those two breeds. They have trained other breeds, including Hungarian Vizslas. Guide dogs have their own full breeding programme, which is again based around retrievers and Labradors, especially for first partnerships. But they also chain German Shepherds and have now started to look at crossbreeding in with poodles. Resources. Guide dogs is the world's largest guide dog employer, with the next largest being in the US and being half the size of guide dogs. They currently partner around 400 dogs a year 800 pre-pandemic. They have 110 guide dog specialists, formerly guide dog mobility instructors. Guide dogs offer a wide range of other mobility training outside of guide dogs and work with children using buddy dogs. Seeing dogs only train and partner dogs. They have no other services. They have three mobility instructors, incidentally all of whom are ex-guide dog employees, who each year partner three to four dogs each. These figures have been steady since they relaunched at the turn of the century, having been originally founded in 1979 and have remained steady throughout the pandemic years. Puppy training. Both organisations place the young puppies with a puppy walker with a view to giving them a varied start in life. Different homes are chosen, for example, to include children, other pets, rural and urban settings. After around 12 months, both organisations then begin the intensive training of their puppies, ready to be partnered. Here lies another difference. Seeing dogs place their dogs in a home environment with their mobility instructor to receive their training, which they believe creates a very stable environment. Whereas guide dogs have training centres where the dogs are trained during the day and then either homed at the centre overnight or placed in nearby foster homes. What do they agree on? Each partnership is unique and matching the right dog is at the very essence of a successful partnership. Whilst their criteria and process for application vary in detail, they both work to ensure the person needs a guide dog. This might sound a strange thing to say, but there are a few key things to consider. Two hours a day. Your dog will typically be working for you just around two hours per day. The other 22 hours, they are a dog and they need care, love and attention. 
For example, if you work, you may need your dog to get you to work, but then perhaps sitting at your desk from nine to five. During this time, your dog still has needs. The quickest route. Dogs need physical boundaries, things to follow. You may be capable and indeed used to walking diagonally across a car park to reach somewhere. A dog will need to walk around the whole perimeter following a boundary. This could be significantly longer for you. Time away from home. When you have a new partnership, especially your first, you are learning to work with your dog and consistency is key. This is not an overnight process. You need to learn how to work together and trust each other. It therefore, you are the sort of person who regularly visits other places for work or leisure. This can affect your training and therefore the long-term partnership. I'm not saying you have to stop your life. I'm just saying you need to consider what you need to do to get the basics right to ensure the right outcome. Finally, I've asked both organisations for a succinct statement they would say about their own organisation. Tim Stafford, Director of Canine Affairs of Guide Dogs said, Here at Guide Dogs, we offer fully funded options for our partnerships and are backed by a full range of other mobility resources. In contrast, Jill Shepherd, trustee, founder, member and honorary president of Seeing Dogs Alliance UK said, all our dogs are owned by their partners and trained and assuming that they will be matched with someone with no usable vision at all. We believe this makes a difference. But is a dog the right choice? I have been registered blind since birth. I have no working cones, so I use my rods, which are intended for night vision. Sunlight therefore completely blinds me. Everything bleaches out to one bright light. In dimly lit rooms, I can see best, but I have no colour vision, no depth perception. I only see out of my left eye and no ability to focus. Hence, everything I can see is very blurred. So whilst I have a lot more vision than other people, I am legally blind because I cannot read any of the optician's chart. So why haven't I got a guide dog? Growing up, it was never suggested as an option. I guess with three blind kids, having three dogs would have been quite a handful. Then I went off to university, relying on friends, qualified as a chartered accountant, then worked for myself. So I was in complete control of the whole work environment. Marriage, kids and separation followed. And suddenly I had two little people to look after without another adult. I applied for a guide dog. My house was deemed unsuitable without a pavement. Moving off the island in 2019, I went on the list in January 2020, which is where I remain. I have fully accepted matching others who are prioritised is fair and I know the right match will come. In the meantime, I have had my own dogs who, whilst of course not trained, have all worked with me and I'm sure they knew I could barely see and have stuck to my side faithfully. Guide horses. Yes, it is true. Guide horses are a thing. Back in April 2019, the UK saw its first guide horse, Digby, a miniature horse, underwent 20 months of training, including, as pictured, wearing his harness and Thunderboy pants in case of accidents. He is pictured on the Newcastle Metro. Why, you may ask, why? The simple reason, horses can live as long as 45 years. Finally, I wanted to mention there is one other UK supplier of dogs for visually impaired people, Pathfinders. Although not registered, it is based in Scotland a small organisation specialising in German shepherds. They say in that application process, we welcome applications for potential clients. However, we feel it best to inform you in advance that because we are such a small programme, 
in our infancy and only produce German shepherds, we are committed to growing at a realistic rate and we will endeavour to match you with the most suitable German shepherd to ensure a safe working relationship. So, dog or cane? A dog, however, is certainly not for everyone. I asked Chris, one of our trustees, to give his experience of cane use and why he has, as a completely blind person, not chosen to even consider a guide dog. He tells his story. Dog or Cane by Chris Biles, read by Chris Kane. By way of introduction, I've been totally blind since my early 20s and severely partially sighted since birth until the point was reached that what little vision I had eventually disappeared. My first exposure to any form of white cane came when I first entered a specialist provision learning environment when I was 10 years old. My visual function was at a point back then when I could use the short form of stick known as a symbol cane reasonably well, which is designed primarily as an indicator to other pedestrians and road users that you have a sight impairment and as such should not be considered as a tactile mobility and orientation aid. One teacher at my specialist school insisted I had some exposure to using the so-called long cane whose sweeping movement in front of your body is specifically intended to provide a constant tactile awareness of the ground in front of you. This is so the cane makes contact with potential obstacles before your own anatomy takes the hit, so to speak. Although I thought back in the day that I had enough residual vision not to need a long cane, thinking these were primarily intended for people with no sight at all, I learned with the passage of time that whatever residual sight you think you have, the tactile information the long cane can provide offers you more protection from obstacles. When total blindness imposed itself in my early 20s and my regular use of the long cane became indispensable, I effectively had to learn, with the help of some specialist mobility tuition, a few good habits about relying on tactile and acoustic information how to make sense of your surroundings. At the same time, though, I also had to unlearn one or two unhelpful traits, such as turning your head to a shadowy blur, which you think might help you with your orientation, only to find your forehead ends up striking a brick pillar. The fact this situation occurred during a controlled tuition session was interesting because the instructor in question thought that giving someone space to make a mistake like that might prove an effective means of corrective learning, which I think turned out to be true. The fact is that in contrast to a symbol cane, which can be used following a fairly rudimentary level of instruction, the use of the long cane requires a relatively intense period of structured tuition by a qualified professional whose exact job title has evolved over the decades since the long cane was introduced to the UK just over 50 years ago. The time required to learn the full long cane technique can vary, but several weeks or a couple of months might be considered as a ballpark average. When you start using a long cane, it is common to use a large public building like County Hall to learn some basic orientation skills, as well as the safe use of steps when the cane is held in a different position depending on whether you are going up or down. 
When things are progressed to learning routes outdoors, which can increase in complexity as you become more proficient, the learning curve will typically involve the safe and confident negotiation of various road junctions, as well as the diverse range of street crossings typically found on the public highways. With some residual vision, one thing which you could almost take for granted when relying on visual landmarks was being able to reverse a route you'd just learned. But when this has to be done with no residual vision, your reliance on a combination of tactile and sound clues becomes ever more crucial. When considering the difference between long cane use and a dog, I note one principal difference. A dog can not only detect obstacles, but take evasive action, whereas a cane user might typically encounter striking obstacles not directly in their path. To summarise my experience of using a cane and why this method of mobility is preferable, I think the phrase horses for courses comes to mind, which is as good a way as saying that such things are down to the choice of the individual. This is Lisa reading Hello Everyone. I, as the CEO of the Isle of Wight Society of the Blind, Sight for White, have been elected to sit on the Isle of Wight Health and Care Partnership Board to represent vulnerable adults living on the Isle of Wight. One of the areas currently on the agenda is off-island appointments, which have unfortunately become something we are looking to have to live with. It is not a decision that's been taken lightly, but sometimes the skill base needed is simply not available on the island. So in order to provide the best level of care, people will have to travel over the Solent. As part of this, I have offered to help in producing some of our Hello Everyone QR codes to try and help as many people as possible make that journey as stress-free as possible. So as a start, we have produced a sample QR code for the journey via the Ride Hovercraft to the QA. We are, of course, hoping that the NHS take these codes up and we can produce them for the other routes to other hospitals and clinics via all of the ferry crossings. Chancellor, back to work, read by Paula. The Chancellor and the Work and Pensions Secretary have recently announced several new welfare and employment policies under a new back to work plan and as part of the autumn statement. The proposals include tougher rules around the requirements to look for work, which will apply to some out of work benefits and some future changes to assessments. What has been announced? There's going to be more emphasis on finding work and on working from home, with the risk of benefits being reduced or cut if people do not look for work. What's important to know is that if you're already in the benefit system, you won't suddenly be expected to find work or lose your benefits. Some of the changes will be rolled out in 2024, but some will not come in until at least 2025 and will only apply to new applicants. The UK government's back-to-work plan outlines how it plans to tackle long-term unemployment, including supporting and incentivising unemployed universal credit claimants to find work. The two work-based assessments that will be affected are ESA, Employment and Support Allowance, and LCWRA, limited capacity for work-related activity, but the government 
has committed to not reassessing the majority of people who have LCWRA status already, but it will affect all new claimants. If you are concerned about your own situation, please contact the RNIB helpline on 0303-123-9999 asking to speak to one of the benefit advisors or you can email helpline at rnib.org.uk Project Fusion, read by Elaine. Project Fusion, there will be no big bang change in the way mental health provision is delivered on the island when services merge with the mainland next year, health bosses have said. It comes as the New Hampshire and Isle of Wight Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust prepares to launch in April. The new trust will take on the responsibility of the Community Mental Health and Learning Disability, CMHLD in brackets, services of four regional NHS bodies. It means the Isle of Wight NHS Trust will no longer run the CMHLD services on the island, but there have been reassurances they will still be delivered locally. NHS bosses hope the new Foundation Trust will make things easier, simpler and better for patients and staff who work across the organisation. The four bodies coming together include the Isle of Wight NHS Trust, Southern Health NHS Foundation Trust, Solent NHS Trust and the Sussex Partnership NHS Foundation Trust. Speaking at a recent meeting, Dr Leslie Stevens, the Isle of Wight NHS CMHLD director, said the large-scale organisation would benefit the island by improving access to services regardless of postcode. She said it would also reduce duplication across services, which would save the trust money that could be reinvested. Dr Stevens said... Very detailed work is ongoing to ensure we are safe on day one when the services come together. Our expectation is there won't be a big bang change, but as we work together differently, we will take the opportunities to improve our services. Dr Stevens stated the island would also benefit from access to highly specialist services and training, supervision and support for staff that the island cannot provide. In return, mainland partners have been visiting to learn more about how the mental health sector on the island works together. Dr Stevens said the organisation was making a real commitment on trauma-informed care, ensuring staff are properly cared for but also being sensitive to trauma in the way they care for people. The range of services provided includes adult mental health services including adult and older people's inpatient wards and places of safety, community and crisis support teams, crisis house and crisis alternatives, 
low and medium secure services for adults including a learning disability unit, eating disorders, early intervention in psychosis, gambling and stalking support, NHS talking therapies, acute hospital psychiatric liaison and mental health NHS 111. Services for children and families including Child and Adolescents Mental Health Services, including Low, Medium, Secure Inpatients, Health Visiting, School Nursing, Child Health Services and Immunizations, Children's Therapies and Continuing Care, Perinatal and Maternal Mental Health Services, Safeguarding and Looked After Children. Physical health services including community nursing, therapies and palliative care, community hospitals, urgent treatment centres, urgent response and virtual wards, outpatients, community diagnostic hubs and phlebotomy, musculoskeletal podiatry and pain management services, Specialist teams, e.g. tissue, viability, bladder and bowel, fails, diabetes, neuro rehab, sexual health specialists, dental and wheelchair services, primary care, provision of some general practice services, learning disability, community learning disability services for children, young people and adults. As I write this, I realise that we've been in our new shop for over six months. I'm delighted to share with you that we go from strength to strength. New customers have found us and our reputation for quality has grown. I thought that I would share just some of the lovely items that we have on offer. Great shopping starts here. Brand new Karen Millen Crombie coat in a stunning bright blue. Our price, £120. Radley watch, £10. Leather brown boots, size 7, £55. Brand new Joe Brown black and mustard jacket, size 12, £39. Brand new Radley black handbag, our price, £86, originally £169. Woolovers cardigan, with cashmere and merino wool, size 12, £22. We hope that you will visit Dress for Less soon. Don't forget to take advantage of our loyalty scheme. Hello everybody, from me Terry, with you once again for Terry's 20 Teasers for the current edition of Sight for White's magazine. Uh, The first five questions are all about leap years. So if you're ready, off we go. Number one, is this year a leap year? Number two, which is the special day in a leap year? Number three, why do we have this special day? Number four, what is the traditional custom originally from Ireland on that particular day. And I have to say it's never happened to me yet. 
Number five, when will the next leap year be? Right, the next five questions are entitled With Age Comes Wisdom, although I'm not quite sure that it's true in my case. Number six, who is older, David Attenborough or Dick Van Dyke? Number seven, the actress Glynis Johns died recently. How old was she? Number eight, a famous female flying pilot died in Sandown a few years ago at the age of 101. What was her name? Number nine, a 100-year-old is called a centurion. True or false? And number ten, very approximately, how many people of over 100 do you think there are in Britain? Okay, enough about age. The next five questions are all concerned with languages. Number 11. What is the preferred language used in Quebec? Number 12. Is it okay to speak French in Belgium? Number 13. What is Esperanto? Number 14. What does BSL stand for? And number 15. There's a choice of three answers for this one. What is the most widely spoken language in the world? It seems that nobody can quite make up their mind on that. And the last five questions, as usual, are pot luck. Number 16. Do snakes lay eggs? Number 17. Who was the POTUS president of the United States, that is, after Jimmy Carter? Number 18. What kind of pine tree is a monkey puzzle tree? Number 19. How many noughts are there in the number 10 million? And number 20. What sort of fish is a kipper? There we are, your 20 questions. See how you got on with them. And now the answers to Terry's 20 teasers. Number one. Yes, this year is a leap year. Number two. February the 29th is the special day. Number three. We need to have an extra day every four years because the earth actually takes 365 and a quarter days to go around the sun. So the extra day adjusts for this. Number four. The tradition is that ladies can propose marriage to gentlemen on that day. 
<laughs> as I said, hasn't happened to me yet. Number five, the next leap year will be in the year 2028. Number six, Dick Van Dyke is 98, whereas David Attenborough is 97. So Dick Van Dyke is slightly older than David Attenborough. Glynis Johns was 100 when she died. Number eight, the famous female flying pilot was Mary Ellis. Number nine, false. A 100-year-old is called a centenarian. A centurion was actually in charge of 100 soldiers, usually Roman ones. Number 10. How many 100-year-olds do you think there are in Britain? There are somewhere around 1,600 centenarians currently alive in Britain. So give yourself a point if you got anywhere near it, I should think, within two or 3,000 either way. Number 11, French is the preferred language in Quebec, although it is a variation on the language which people in France speak. Number 12, speaking French in Belgium is not recommended. They prefer people to use their own language, (laughs) as I was once told very bluntly by a Belgian shopkeeper. He said, speak Belgian or English. (laughs) Yes, sir. Number 13. Esperanto is an international language created so that everybody in the world could communicate with each other. However, no country has actually adopted it and it's unclear how many people can converse in it. Number 14. BSL stands for British Sign Language. Number 15. Yes, different sources make different claims. So if you said Chinese Mandarin, Spanish or English, give yourself a point. Any of those three may be the most widely spoken language in the world. And the last five potluck questions. Number 16, most snakes do lay eggs, but ones who live in colder regions don't, as they don't sit on their eggs to keep them warm, so they wouldn't survive. So the answer is sort of yes, most of them. Number 17, Ronald Reagan followed Jimmy Carter as American president. Jimmy Carter's still going, he's getting pretty near to being a centenarian. I think he's 99 at the moment. Number 18, the monkey puzzle tree is a chili pine or a Chilean pine, the alternative names. I was told it was called a monkey puzzle tree. My dad told me many years ago because the monkeys can't work out how to climb it. I don't know if that's what you always understood too. Number 19, There are seven noughts in the number 10 million. And finally, number 20, 
a kipper is a herring, actually one that's been smoked. Well, how did you get on? Hope you did okay. More importantly, hope you enjoyed doing them. And uh, we'll speak again sometime in the future. Bye for now. Now, I must add a, a sort of a footnote to the answers I gave you. I've just realised that I made a mistake. I'm so sorry. I listened back afterwards and realised I'd said there were 1,600 uh, people of 100 years or over still alive in Britain today. I'm sorry. It was 16,000. So my apologies for that mistake. And give yourself a point if you got anywhere near that number. <laughs> sorry about that. Bye. Contact details. Site for White. Telephone. 01983 Email. Enquiries at iwsb.org.uk Website siteforwhite.org.uk White Sense Telephone 01983 240222 Email info at uk Web whitesense.org.uk Opening hours Monday to Friday 9am to 4pm Dress for Less. Telephone 01983 523 197. Email retail at iwsb.org.uk. Address 57 Pyle Street, Newport, Isle of Wight, PO30 1UL. Newsletter available in the following formats Alexa. USB Braille BBC Sounds Music Radio Podcasts Good evening. Strange thing to say for a journalist, but tonight there is no story. Or rather, that is the story. That when it comes to blind and partially sighted people getting jobs, the statistics have barely changed over the past six decades. We're still talking about around only one in four visually impaired people of working age having a job, and this despite equality legislation, countless campaigns, incentive schemes, and, to be fair, government programmes like Access to Work, which provide financial and human help with specialist equipment and in-work support. So, if nothing's changed, why are we looking at it again? Well, because a new YouGov poll of 2,000 businesses commissioned by the all-party parliamentary group of eye health and vision impairment suggests some of the reasons why there is so little progress. Marcia de Cordova, MP for Battersea and chair of that all-party group, is with us. Marcia, first of all, in a nutshell, what does the poll tell us? I mean, essentially, what it's really confirmed is that misconceptions about um, employing blind and partially sighted people still remain. We know that the disability employment gap remains at around 30% and has done so for more than a decade. And then when you're looking at the pay gap, you know, again, you know, disabled people are working potentially up to 47 days 
every year for free because the pay gap is so broad. Now, a key part of your report, though, the findings were the fact that quite alarming numbers of employers, almost half, really didn't accept that they should make accommodations. About one in four said they wouldn't employ a blind person. I mean, that was probably the most shocking, Peter. I mean, we had, you know, nearly half of those said that their recruitment processes were inaccessible. So that's a challenge in and of itself. You've already highlighted the issue around those being able to make those reasonable adjustments and adaptations when employing someone. But I think also that you haven't highlighted is, you know, more than a third said they really wouldn't know where to go and access that kind of practical Mm. support through schemes such as access to work. But I think, as you've highlighted, I think the shocking one for me was that, you know, a quarter said that they weren't going to be able to employ somebody living with sight loss. I think that's quite shocking. You know, we've been in the sector for a number of years now. We need to shape and help to change those attitudes so that more people wanting to work can work, but also when they are in work, that they are supported. But I alluded to at the start is the misconceptions. You know, there was one stat that really concerned me was that, you know, many didn't think that, you know, a blind and partially sighted person could use a, a computer. A quarter of them thought that, frankly, which is quite shocking. Now, we did contact the Federation of Small Businesses. They regretted they couldn't provide a spokesperson for the programme, but they did acknowledge that their own research confirmed that less than half of those questioned had heard of access to work and less than one in 20 had actually used it. And they suggested that more publicity was needed for programmes like this. It's fair to say, isn't it, that it's not just employer attitudes that's causing the problem? Well, it certainly is. But also, yes, it's about raising awareness and so forth. But there has to be proactivity as well. And the government can do more. Of course, they can do more. I always see access to work as probably the best kept secret because it is the most effective form of employment support. Having Mm. been a user of it myself in the past, you know, if more people knew about it, that would be fantastic. But also it needs proper investment and the scheme needs to be administered properly as well. As you well know, there are huge backlogs and delays to people getting the support they need. I really do hope that the FSB will actually submit written evidence to our inquiry. They've done their own research. They should be feeding into this process as well. OK, well, we'll be mentioning the inquiry at the end. Mm. We're going to try yet again to tease out what can be done to improve this situation. With us, we also have Martin O'Kane, RNIB's Strategic Lead for Technology and Employment, and Eleanor Southwood, who's Director of Social Impact at the Vision Foundation, which is a funding organisation and it's been doing a good deal of work in supporting visually impaired people into work. We had very much hoped that the new Minister for Disabled People, Mims Davis, would be with us, but were told that it wasn't possible to make it work with her diary. We will, though, be examining the statistics the department has provided for what they've been doing on this in a moment. But before that, I want us to hear from Simon, Simon Hill, whose story illustrates a lot of the barriers that people like him are encountering. Simon, just initially, you had a job and had been doing it, I think, for around six years. What went wrong? I'd uh, decided to apply for a change of role and pass the interview. The system that I needed to use wasn't accessible with the dual screen reader that I used. Um, There was a lengthy process with that 
having to be made accessible. Long story short, it took about 18 months to get it to a point where it was accessible for me to use. I then uh, passed the internal tests to become a qualified mortgage advisor. And then I went into work one day and was told that they were changing the way they process applications. They said that I couldn't continue in the role. So after Um, two years of trying to get it right, at the very point that you'd got it right, they changed it? Yeah, essentially. There was no discussion with myself, so I suggested several workarounds. I was suggesting solutions. I wasn't just, you know, saying, oh, I haven't got the answers, but fix this because there are ways we can do this. So I went down the legal route and essentially was told that even if I won the case at tribunal, which I was told that I probably would, that because of the way the law is structured at the moment, that although the judge could recommend that the employer makes the changes, they can't force them to. And the only way I can try and force them to if they don't do it within a certain period of time is go to another tribunal okay stay with us simon it is a long and complex story but that's the essence of it let me bring in martin o'kane from the rnib you lead with the rnib on technology and employment technology is often cited as a potential game changer in employment for visually impaired people not in this case by the sound of it and in quite a lot of others we've heard about Employers do have an obligation under Equality Act legislation to make adjustments in the workplace. There's obviously been a real need for training here with the employer and a much greater awareness of sight loss, which should have been addressed at the recruitment stage. There's so many adjustments that can be put in place. And even where a system is not accessible, we would ask employers to work with the likes of RNIB to check accessibility, to try and make improvements and to be very flexible with an employee or a new person coming into the organisation. But it's just simply not acceptable for an employer to not put in place any adjustment and to leave Simon in the very difficult situation that he's been put in. But there are a lot of players in this situation, aren't there? There are the employers, as you said. Quite often there is the Department of Work and Pensions because the whole issue of access to work and getting the right equipment comes up. There's the computer and software companies, maybe yourselves and other charities if somebody's helping. Is, is the issue just that you're somehow not all managing to work together? There are so many different areas of support for an employer. If someone is starting a job, they can come to the RNIB for some initial assistance. Unfortunately, a lot of employers just don't know about the support that's out there to help people. We would urge employers, please don't feel you're on your own and that you need to be an expert in sight loss. You don't come to the RNIB, ask for help. Employers need to ask for help. Now, the Minister for Disabled People just last week launched a new disability action plan Is there anything in there that will help with this? The Disability Action Plan, it's good to have a plan and to outline some kind of short-term actions that the government plans to put in place. To be honest, there are some elements of the plan which are quite disappointing. There's no actual direct reference in the Disability Action Plan in relation to employment. It does talk about helping businesses to make improvements for disabled people, but there's such a a need for the government uh, departments to make sure that whether they've got a plan in place or not, that everything is done to ensure that blind and partially sighted people are supported to get more employment opportunities and to keep people who are in work and acquire sight loss to to stay there. Well, just to bring us back to the people this most affects, there are many stories like Simon's that we hear on this programme. Here are just a few more examples of experiences that we've heard about over the last couple of years. 
Well, basically, I was kept waiting a year for reasonable adjustments to be made and constantly reassured that they were being made. And then I was told that those adjustments couldn't be made and that the job offer was being withdrawn as a result of that. So I was made redundant and since then I applied for almost 2,000 jobs. I work in marketing and data, so my field was a little bit broad where I could apply from anything from social media all the way through to data analyst. But yeah, I took about 200 interviews. <laughs> One of the interviews I've got, I told him I was visually impaired and he actually laughed at me and hung a call up. I had one where there was two of us left. I had disclosed my disability at that point. And they called me the next day to say that somebody else was better suited. But what they didn't know is I actually knew the candidate and I trained that person. That was uh, Anne Harrod and before that, Rihanna. Eleanor Southwood from the uh, Vision Foundation, you've been listening to all that. What are your reactions to this? I mean, what is missing in what people are being offered? So at the Vision Foundation, our absolute priority as a funder. So we support organisations who run really interesting, innovative projects that we want to learn from. So we can see what works, gather better evidence. Our own research in 2021 was very similar in terms of the concerns that potential employers had, really looking at the sorts of barriers people were facing starting way before somebody is applying for a job as well. So We know that there is a chronic shortage of emotional support for people who are being told they're losing their sight. Very often people will leave a job. And so, you know, actually support to be reassured that it is possible to work and that, you know, there is a system and structure that will support somebody is super important. So we have invested £350,000 across 10 projects looking at Uh, really practical things that can be done. So, for example, a mentoring scheme for young people. Uh, Lots of young people are sort of coming out of school or college really ill-equipped for the workforce of today. Well, that's what I I was going to ask you that. Are people coming to these jobs with the right skill sets? I mean, a huge mix, as you'd expect. There is a huge amount of talent out there, lots of skill and experience. There is also, though, lots of people who have been let down, perhaps by an education which hasn't supported them to become as digitally competent as, you know, today's workforce requires. People who feel very nervous about some of the social aspects of work and really need that one-to-one support to sort of increase their confidence about what it is to be in a workplace. I said the Department of Work and Pensions had uh, given us a statement about what they were doing to try to improve this situation. I think it's time we heard that. They say... This government has a strong track record of supporting disabled people, with 2.2 million more disabled people in work than in 2013. Our new £2.5 billion back-to-work plan will support more than 600,000 disabled people and those with long-term health conditions to overcome barriers to secure and to stay in work. Our flagship disability confidence scheme can help businesses improve how they recruit, retain and develop disabled employees and our recent occupational health consultation will help to ensure staff are offered the best possible support. I want to bring back Marsha to Cordova on this. I mean, put like that, you'd have to say that they were doing quite a lot, wouldn't you? 
No, unfortunately, I wouldn't be able to say that, Peter, because I think the evidence speaks for itself. We've just heard some real life examples of what is happening to people within the labour market. So something isn't quite working there, is it? But also, you know, we had a government publish a disability action plan that fails to be ambitious in, in my view in any way. It really doesn't seek to tackle some of those burning injustices that disabled people continue to face, whether it's around the cost of living, whether it's around education or or what we're all talking about today, employment um, and the labour market. Schemes like access to work are vital and unfortunately people are still experiencing long delays with that. The government have spoken in that statement about their flagship disability confident programme. You and I both know employers can have that accreditation and not employ a single disabled person. The fact that they've also downgraded the role of the Minister for Disabled People also speaks volumes. It is interesting, and I want to put this to the panel, that though we made it clear that this discussion was on the In Touch programme and therefore would concentrate on visually impaired people, none of the statistics the department has given us there relate specifically to visual impairment and I'm just wondering how significant you would say that is perhaps I can put that to Eleanor. I think it's hugely significant there are unique experiences and barriers that people who are blind and vision impaired encounter and I think having all disabilities grouped into one overarching statistic tells us nothing about actually how blind and vision impaired people are getting on. This isn't the only area in which this is a significant challenge. We're doing a lot of work at the moment on loneliness and isolation, which is, you know, very linked to employment and being out of work and and finding that really challenging. Again, the statistics are disabled people generally. So really, until we understand exactly what the numbers are for blind and vision impaired people, it's pretty hard to really get under the skin of the issue. I'd like to go back to Simon Hill listening to this. I mean, you're at the sharp end of of this. Based on what you've heard, what would most help you and other people perhaps you know in this situation? First of all, it's absolutely correct that the disability confidence scheme is meaningless. I've been Now, to finish off my story a bit, that was 2017. I ended up having to leave my job, signing a non-disclosure agreement, etc., etc. We're now, several years later, having applied to several different employers for different jobs. The first question I've been asked by a supposedly disability-confident employer is, well, you're blind, how are you going to use a computer? So really, for me, at the centre of it all, it's technology. A computer system is at the centre of pretty much any job we will apply for, And frankly, any other adjustments are meaningless if the computer system doesn't work for us. And just at this moment, I was successful in being offered a job finally with the DWP themselves last July. And lo and behold, here we are, how many months later, and I'm being told the system isn't accessible and they're talking to HR and not the DWP. That that is ironic. We're almost out of time. But I want to go back to Marsha de Cordova. You're now launching an inquiry that is calling on the experiences of visually impaired people, businesses and some other organisations as well. What do you want to know from people specifically? The inquiry really aims to better understand the impact um, that some of these barriers and the attitudes are having um, on blind and partially sighted people. Obviously, looking at some of the policies and practices that are currently in place, I think one of the key elements of it as well and part of the aim is really to gather the solutions that 
employers, government and others can really look at in terms of how they can do better to improve their current practices. And how do people submit their experiences and how long do they have to do it? The the inquiries opened until Friday the 15th of March and they can submit and you can find out more information on our website, which is iHealthviappg.org.uk. If people are unable to access and do this online, then they certainly can contact my office and we can arrange for somebody from the all party group to contact them. Can we give a number for that? Fine. Yes, it is public anyway. So it's 0207-219-0209. Okay. But I'm sure you can share that information as well. Right. Thank you very much. And there we'll have to leave it. We haven't solved the problem, but we've tried to address it and see it. some of the ways it could be solved. Marsha de Cordova, Simon Hill, Eleanor Southwood and uh, Martin O'Kane. Thank you all very much indeed. We would also very much welcome people's comments, experiences and suggestions. You can email in touch at bbc.co.uk. You can leave voice messages on 0161 836 and you can go to our website for more information. That's bbc.co.uk forward slash in touch. From me, Peter White, producer Beth Hemmings and uh, studio managers Nat Stokes and Amy Brennan. Goodbye. Scaffolding and Skips News, week commencing the 19th of February 2024. Newport area, Key House, Key Street, 7 High Street, 6 Dodna Mews, Dodna Lane, 30 High Street, Oggy's Chip Shop, 2 to 3 St Thomas's Square, Corio Lounge, High Street, 36 South Street, 33 South Street. Ride Area, Nationwide, 3 St Thomas Square, Cross Street, 2 St Thomas Square. Job Centre, 150 High Street, 18A West Street, 9 St Thomas Square. Overbank, Upper Green Road, St. Helens, 77 High Street, 2 Theatre Train, Cross Street. East Cows area, the Barracks, Guardhouse, Albany Road. Ventnor area, 2 East Street, Boots the Chemist, High Street. Shanklin area, 73 Regent Street. Jerome and Co, Steep Hill Chambers, Steep Hill Road and Village Inn, Church Road. Yarmouth area, the Bank House, the Square. Cows area, 2 Queen's Road and there are no skips this week. <laughs>